Hi, welcome to Sweetman Podcast. I'm your host, I'm Simon Sweetman, and this is episode 216. It's a conversation I recorded a few months ago, um, you know, before lockdown. I've mentioned this um, a couple of times. It was with uh, David Cormack, who works in PR. He, We started the conversation talking about how he used to, uh, if not work in comedy, he had a hobby as a, a fledgling comedian. Um, and he's you, you might have seen him on TV, heard him on radio, he's often on RNZ's The Panel, um, and he had a column for The Herald, which we talk about, that's I guess one of the casualties of uh, lockdown, so in this conversation he's talking about it uh, quite knowingly and with full awareness that one day it will end, and then of course it, it, it has since we recorded this. Uh, but we had a big old chat about all sorts of things, including... Uh, the podcast Brazen, which he is one of the producers and creators uh, of. That there's so far, as when we're talking, there are only two episodes up, but now there are five episodes of this up. It's a fantastic podcast. Uh, Susie Ferguson from RNZ is the host of the podcast, and it is uh, conversations, brave conversations with strong female figures, people uh, working in a range of. Uh, disciplines and it's about their work and life uh, experiences and stories and I've listened to at you know at the time I'd only heard two obviously when I'm talking to him that's all that there was but I've heard the three episodes that have been uploaded since and it is it is a really worthwhile series so do check that out and I hope to talk to to Susie and and someone else at least involved in the brazen podcast as I say during this conversation with David um, yeah, so we talked about all sorts of things, uh, including our, how we got to know each other, which is a reasonably funny story, um, and, uh, and then we talked a lot about um, radio and RNZ and journalism in general. There's some interesting dialogue around uh, Simon Bridges and Matthew Hooten. Now, I'll just reiterate this conversation. These are just David's thoughts and his experiences from knowing these people. But uh, this was before the uh, the coup where Todd Muller took over, uh, usurped Simon Bridges and uh, uh, became the leader of the National Party. So the conversation is nothing around that. Uh, it is around Simon Bridges as a political figure and it's around Matthew Hooten as a, a fellow uh, pundit and uh, PR person and friend of, of David's. Um, so interesting to, to hear that stuff now, um, given what's happened. Um, so a lot of, lot of political chat in this, a lot of talk about writing and um, opinions and uh, those are uh, subjects that I enjoy that are close to my heart. And uh, you know, David's a guy I've known for a long time and, and wanted to have on the podcast for a while. I think when I first asked him, he was like, what the hell would we talk about? Why would you want to talk to me? And um, I knew that um, he would be happy to come on and talk about the Brazen podcast. Uh, and we got to talk about everything else as well, um, including uh, many of the things that he's been involved in, some really great stories. So I hope you enjoy this. This is me talking with David Cormack. I was trying to work out how long we've known each other and how we know it. I mean, I sort of know how we know each other. We know each other because we were at opposite ends of the comedy spectrum, I guess you could say. Um, I was funny. Yeah, well, well, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I never saw your act, so I'd have to agree. <laughs> no, you're a comedian. Sort of. Sort of. You were doing comedy. As a hobby. As a hobby. You yeah. were uh, attempting comedy, and I say that, like, yeah, you were, you were, that was 
I'm not trying to be uh, give you a dig, but you were involved in comedy. Yeah, so and how, I was involved in comedy reviewing. So that's we were at, we were at opposite ends of the bone. But it also actually goes back a little bit longer than that. And when you were doing your stuff blog, mm. and you farmed it out to people for one week a year, yeah, I was one of the people that you farmed it out to. Oh, so that was be- slightly before that. Was that. slightly oh, before. Okay. All right, I, I think yeah, or at, at the same time. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that, that, that rings bells anyway. So so let, let's go back before that to where you grew up and, and, and who you are ahead of that. I grew up here in Wellington. Um, I grew up in the ghetto of Kandala. Uh, my parents were both teachers, though. They just bought a house in Kandala early enough when it was still affordable. Um, and went to Kandala School, went to Raroa Intermediate, uh, and then I went to Wellington College. But I'd never really fitted in at Wellington College. Um, played sport, but it wasn't the be-all and end-all mm. of my existence. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm much more academic and, and theatrical. Uh, and I always felt like they were never given enough, not enough attention, never enough kudos during the assemblies. You'd always it'd be 20 minutes of the latest sports kid who'd done amazingly, but there'd be bugger all about anyone who'd performed well academically. And so I always felt misplaced there. But my mum taught there, and so mm. it was a bit awkward. But then I got, one day I got in the, I got in trouble with a teacher, and she kicked me out and sent me to the assistant principal or something. And when I came back to class after having seen the assistant principal, someone had taken my chair, and I was like, bugger this, this is, this is it, I'm done, I'm out. And so I just picked up my school bag and went to the principal and said, I'm, I'm leaving, sign me out. And they did, and my parents were furious. <laughs> uh, and so then I went to Wellington High for the second half of sixth form uh, or year 12 as it is now and mm. Wellington High was cool on my first day there I was really struck by there were kids who you'd look at and go oh yeah that's a jock but they were mingling with kids who you'd look at and go oh that's a nerd and at Wellington College those lines were so clearly delineated yeah. but at Wellington High it was completely blurred and I was like this place is amazing it's it's the, the kids will get it on with each other and the teachers foster this environment where there are no cliques and everyone seems really nice. But the, the floor I had at Wellington High was that I was a, a lazy bastard and Wellington High kind of takes the approach that the kids will sort themselves out and they don't push you very mm. hard. And I'd been at Wellington College, which is this quite strict and regimented regime around teaching, and Wellington High was at the other end of the spectrum and so I performed really badly academically at Wellington High. Um, and then my old man got a job teaching in the UK, so the whole whānau packed up, went over there for my seventh form year, uh, and that was amazing, because we lived in a terrible, terrible town, just out of Bath, uh, but uh, I got to go to Reading Rockfest, um, Mm. and saw Eminem and Marilyn Manson were the headliners when I was there. I was going to say, what an age to be, like, just your age, um, that you were to be taken on that sort of OE, where... Basically, your family's funding it. They're still looking after you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was amazing. It was amazing. And so... But you're old enough to have experience. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. You know, and and I... And the pub scene, I was only 16 or 17, but they used to let everyone into the pubs, and so that was my first time uh, in the pub scene. It was, you know, about the last time I really was a drinker. Mm. Um, And... We went to Western Europe and I got to see all this amazing stuff when I was 16 or 17. And what that really did for me was rammed home just how small 
and at the time, Pointless New Zealand was considered by yeah. by because we're in my school. The the the, uh, the things that the kids would know about New Zealand was Jonah Lomu. And this mm. was in two thousand and one. Mm. Jonah Lomu and Lucy Lawless were the two things that people yeah, knew. So Peter Jackson hadn't even quite. No. So it was pre Lord of the Rings. That. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that would all be very different now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so that was it. And and when you live in New Zealand and you don't go offshore, you think that you're always taught that we punch above our weight and all this mm. shit. But we we don't. No. Uh, we we make crappy Greek historical faux historical shows, and yeah, that's how what people know us for. And so that was a big eye opening experience. And then uh, it was only ever going to be for a year. And so I came back, and then yeah, went to university. Here, I was going to go to Otago, but um, I was only 17 when I started university, and my mother, because all Jewish mothers are very protective of their children, my mother said she didn't want me leaving Wellington at such a young age, so I ended up going to Vic instead of Otago, um, mm. which I was quite upset about. There was a girl I fancied who went to Otago, and I wanted to chase her as well. And so, yeah, did did a BA, which is in philosophy and political science and I've never seen a job ad for a philosopher or a political scientist so it didn't really help me career wise help that woman though which woman's that? the Otago one yeah, well yes <laughs> yes saved, it saved her from me that's accurate she is um, she was she was my girlfriend in fifth form uh, and then no sixth form fuck I can't even remember I'm getting old now <laughs> and so when I'd gone away we'd broken up but when I came back there was an expectation we'd get back together but we did not yeah uh, she chose well good on you Sarah <laughs> um, and so yeah so then I yeah, went to uni here uh, and spent a lot of time at the Matterhorn is, is that still around? no nah, it's gone is it gone? They put a bomb through it they're doing the um, the refurb at the moment yeah Oh, that's a shame. It's gone. I had the most amazing experience, which I've never resolved at the Matterhorn, where I went there, and there was a huge queue to get in, and it was stretching quite far down Cuba Street, and I just walked up the front of the queue just to see what was going on. Yeah. And when I got to the front of the queue, the bouncer saw me, and he just opened the door, and he said, right this way, sir. And mm. I was like, I, this is, I don't know who he thinks I am. And I walked in, and the guy at the front of the queue said, oh, why'd you let him in? And the bouncer said, don't you know who that was? But then the door shut, and so I didn't hear the end of that conversation. <laughs> and then I walked in, and what the maitre d' said, oh, well, come this way, Mr. Cormac. We'll, we'll put you at this table, and we'll set up a tab for you. And so they knew that I was Cormac, but I was a nobody. Like, I, mm. I don't know what, mm. how this had... Come back, and I freaked out and got overawed by it all and ran away and didn't take advantage of being let in. And it's all, I've always remembered that because it was my you know my brush with pseudo celebrity. The only Gosh. part of the time that's ever happened was when I went out with Jesse Mulligan, and he just used to get let in at the front of queues all the time. Yeah, and so we just skipped the queues that way. Here I was about to ask you. Um how you got into what you do, but that's basically a metaphor for it right there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. No, I was going to say, where did comedy come into, when did comedy come into your life? Were you were you a teenager obsessed with watching things or not really? So I d it's probably not safe to say anymore, but when mm. I was a teenager, I had a lot of Bill Cosby albums that I really enjoyed. Yeah. And no, I, I'll allow that. Yeah. <laughs> not only because I did too. Just it was the it was an acceptable time. Yeah. So there's yeah. no problem. We didn't with it. know that he was a serial now rapist. Only, now the only people that have a lot of Bill Cosby records are any second hand store. Yes. Yeah. yeah very much yeah. so. Uh, and so and I really liked this concept of 
just telling stories and making people laugh and bringing joy to them. Mm. I thought, that's a cool job. I'd like to do that. But I never thought I would be able to do that. Mm. And so I started attending um, Wellington Comedy at what was then Indigo. And I think it's San Fran mm. now. Mm. Yeah. And, um, and it would have been like maximum of one night a week. Yeah. Every Thursday night, Wellington yeah. Comedy. Uh, and it was run by Sully O'Sullivan. Um, and... You had the likes of Ben Hurley and Steve Wrigley mm -hmm. and 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 uh, the Flight of the Concords. I saw them a few times and Taika Waititi. He was Taika Cohen then. Um, and and you know it was it was these amazing people at the beginnings of their career mm. and getting to see them was really cool. And so I, I used to go every Thursday. Um, and then at my twenty first, uh, so what are we now? Two thousand and five. I was pretty drunk and Corey Gonzalez McCure was at my twenty first. And he said to me, there's a rookie competition in three weeks, and I think you should do it. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. Sounds great. I'll do that. I'll do that. And then I woke up the next day, and he'd text me to remind me and said he wasn't going to let me off. And so I spent the next three weeks shitting myself and trying to write what I thought was funny. Uh, and it was only five minutes, but I don't know if anyone's ever tried to... It's really hard to write five minutes. It's a lot longer than it seems when mm. you, especially. This is the the difference I always found with comedy and theatre is that with theatre you can get the the ambition is for the audience to feel a whole range of emotions, whereas with comedy it was always targeted at one. Make them laugh. Yeah. Right. Mm. You know, like I mean, it's changed a bit now, and now all sorts yeah. of shit gets passed as comedy. But at the time, it was basically just set up punchline, Jokes. crowd laughs. Yeah. So I was really, oh god, I was stressed. The most nervous I think of anything I've ever done, including getting married, having a child, is doing stand-up comedy. There's something. Yeah, terrifying. it's it's um, baffling to me that a standard story around it is people just being absolutely traumatized to try and do it. You know, just just. Um, Shitting themselves, yeah. just absolutely, and many people describing themselves as being shy. You know, I don't get that from you, but um, <laughs> but many people describe themselves as being shy or awkward or intimidated by audience. You know, the mere just just give you several reasons why they shouldn't have done it. Well, why did you do it? Why did you do it? Oh, I wanted to conquer that fear. But what does that mean, and yeah. why? And why bother? I've got heaps of fears I don't want to conquer. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. like because, well, so if I rush. never touch a snake, it'll be too soon. You know, like that's fine. It's exposure therapy supposed to be good for you, but there's a rush that comes with having a good set, right? Yeah, like yeah, you, yeah. And it's it's like a drug. Mm -hmm. um, I can remember talking to Matt Pender, the lead singer, former lead singer of Odessa, about this a lot is that feeling after you've come off stage and you know that the crowd has Nailed had a good it. time yeah. as a result of what you've done yeah. it's an incredible rush oh, incredible sure. um, and so the first set I did was at a rookie comp and I got second at this rookie comp to Alex Hawley um, and he and I kind of ended up like comedy nemesis nemeses uh, over the years against one another uh, and he would beat me every time without fail. I don't think I ever beat him in a single competition. Um, but I was an I was a bastard. I was an asshole of a comedian. Mm. Um, in two thousand and six, I was nominated as New Zealand's most offensive comedian. 
And I wore that as a badge of honour at the time. Yeah. But looking back now, it just makes me cringe. And yeah. I am so, so fucking grateful that cell phones, smartphones didn't exist yeah, yeah. when I was doing comedy. And Your sets weren't being taken. Yeah. There's yeah. no, as far as I'm aware, there's yeah, no yeah. video footage of me doing stand-up comedy, which is, which is a huge relief because my stuff was just awful. Awful. Um, Offensive in what ways? Oh, the, I would, shock value stuff. Yeah, I was ridiculing people with disabilities, and mm-hmm. I don't think oh there was, would have almost certainly been some sexism in there. Sure. Um, I don't think I did racist material, um, but I wouldn't be surprised if I had. You know, like I was. It was for me. It was just offensive and funny. With so the where, same. where did that come from? Like, was that from? Was that sort of hopefully mimicking? Bill Hicks or whoever, you know, no, so, well, so, someone that was smart with it but offensive. I think it might have been whoever it is. I listened to Doug Stanhope by that yeah, stage. Yeah, possibly. Yeah, I think I'd listened to a lot of Doug Stanhope. Yeah, and while I hadn't necessarily found his stuff funny, I admired what he was trying to do, mm. and so I think I was trying to set out to replicate a low rent New Zealand version of Doug Stanhope. Um, and I never came close to it. I was not a very good comedian. I I remember my first, like, five gigs all went really well. And I was thinking to myself, oh, this comedy shit is easy. I don't know mm. what people talk. People always talk about <laughs> you'll die on your ass. Everybody dies on their ass, I said. And after my first five, I was like, no, I won't. I'm, I'm invincible. I'm riding high. Yeah. yeah. And then I, I did a gig at uh, Kitty O'Shea's, an upstairs room of Kitty O'Shea's. I got up and I did the same set that I had done the previous five times that had always worked and it was just to a room of silence. So it Amazing. wasn't a big crowd. There's like 25 people, but nobody laughed. Nothing landed. <laughs> yeah. In fact, no, one person laughed. I laughed. Like I, saw, I, I found it perversely hilarious that it, nobody was finding this funny. I, and I was wow. like laughing at them. I was like, what's wrong with you? The previous five crowds have, have lapped this up. And I don't actually know what it was if I did something differently, if it was the crowd. I've never quite understood mm. the dynamics of why a joke will land one night and not another night. Um, but I just, I died hard. I died several times after. Um, I used to open with a joke to give you a flavour of the sort of comedy I did. I used to open with a joke. <laughs> Thanks, since I never asked. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's alright. Uh, it was a knock-knock joke. And you're, you're familiar with how knock-knock jokes work. Yeah, yeah. Right, so the I Knock, 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 knock. Who's there? Michael J. Fox. Michael J. Fox who? No, see, that, that, no. <laughs> see, that, that's, that, that was the flaw in the joke. The joke was that he has Parkinson's, and so if he was knocking, he would knock several times instead of two. Yeah. Except you did exactly what the good people of Topol would do. Of course did. I did. And that, that threw me, because it had never happened yeah, before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd done this joke, and people had, la, ha, ha, oh. And then I did it in Topol, and the whole crowd as though they had a hive mind just came back with what you Michael J Fox who and I I had no you'd think I'd have thought of a response for that because it is that is structurally yeah, <laughs> how a knock knock joke actually works yeah. but no I didn't yeah. um, and so and I so I comedy it was foolproof was, until it wasn't exactly exactly <laughs> yeah. as all good ideas yeah, are yeah 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 and so comedy it was it was not for me it yeah. was uh, it was too stressful and I wasn't funny enough um you find, you, it's really interesting. I had a friend who was really funny in a social setting, 
Mm. So we all encouraged him heavily to, to have a crack at comedy. And he did, and he was just appalling at it. And so there's a big difference between well, being... I think what you're just saying there, that's arguably the problem with a lot of New Zealand comedy. That, that scenario there is what's given birth to a lot of New Zealand comedians. I think it's You're, a worldwide I th- thing. I'm right? sure it's a worldwide thing, but I haven't seen enough comedy overseas, so I'm going to restrict it to New Zealand. Um, but, yeah, absolutely. You're really funny. You should be a comedian. And the person goes, great, I will. <laughs> and it doesn't work out. But we should still encourage people to sure, give it a crack. Because for, all, for every nine who suck, there might be one who is genuinely very good. And there's a robust fairly robust industry around it now in New Zealand with more opportunities yeah. to for people to give it a quick go. Yeah. To do that thing of an open mic and do it once and go never again yeah. or do it five times and then start to fail or you know whatever whatever version of it and find their maybe find their way or maybe give up. Yeah. And and, and you don't have to be as all in as you probably used to have exactly, to so that's quite good. Yeah, you can dip your toe in and yeah. see. It does, though uh, there was a, there was always a theory that because Wellington had such a small setup, it only had uh, Indigo on Thursday nights, mm. it would force uh, Wellington comics to write more and more jokes because they were effectively playing to the same Crap. 30, 40 yeah. people that would show up, and so they had to write newer and newer jokes. Whereas up in Auckland, you had the luxury of being able to perform and hone and refine the same joke and get it really really polished because you'd have a broader array of audiences so the at the time the theory was Aucklanders were better performers and Wellington were better writers I don't I don't think that's necessarily true now Mm. although I do know that a lot of Wellington comics still do when they want to make the next step in their career they move up to Auckland Mm. Um, there's a few still down here working away at trying to keep the scene going which is really good um but also, New Zealand crowds are hard because we're not demonstrative, you know? I mean, it's sort Mm-mm. of... I can't remember, I think it's a Brendan Lovegrove bit where you'd say, look, if you're having a good time, tell your face. Because we, we even if something's funny, we'll go, that's funny, but we won't necessarily laugh at it. And so comedy in New Zealand is, is tricky, mm-hmm. uh, or rather was. Don't know mm. if it still is. So then I left it. What actually, the final breaking point for me was I got a job in a fancy pants PR firm mm. and given my track record of the sort of comedy I did being offensive exactly they asked me told me I was no longer allowed to do stand up comedy and I was okay with it because I wasn't that invested in stand up comedy mm. and so I just I chucked it um, so you went from a career limiting hobby to a hobby limiting career <laughs> yes that is exactly what happened in fact the hobby limiting nature of it was a large part of what drove me out I was there mm. for two and a half years mm. and the artist in me was dying to get out and, and express itself somehow mm. and so I set up a blog um, and they basically said to me that I would have to choose between running this blog or staying on at the PR firm, and it wasn't so much this blog, it was just doing anything that would show me off to an external audience, and I couldn't put up with that. Mm. I mean, there are a whole host of other reasons, but that was the final straw for me, I was like, no, fuck it, I'm out. And so I chucked the PR firm gig and went and worked uh, in-house at an NGO in comms and was writing this blog. And I actually went to go back and do comedy, except I found a really interesting thing had happened, which is that I'd matured. 
And so when I sat down <laughs> to write material, I found that I couldn't write about the stuff that I'd previously made jokes about because I just yeah. wasn't prepared to be sexist or yeah. make yeah. jokes about disabled people. That sort of, yeah. 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 I, I was becoming woke, I think, as they say now. They say that now. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what did you get your knickers in a knot with me about? Had I had I dished out a review to one of your mates or something? There was just a collective sense in the comedy scene yeah. that you were a fuckwit. Yeah. And that you, your reviews were always really uh, unfairly harsh. And the classic Simon Sweetman review would be like... I think I read one of these that you did about a Dylan Moran gig where you basically said, I had a shit time, I didn't enjoy it, the whole crowd seemed to love it, I don't know what's wrong with the crowd, he was crap. Yeah. And there was the sense... I wouldn't have said that about him, but anyway. He he is overrated. I think so now, but the times I saw him, I enjoyed them. Maybe one of them I did. Once you... For him, there was... I can't remember what it was, but there was a very strict uh, pattern that he would follow for all of his jokes. And as soon as you cracked that pattern... They're not funny anymore. But so there was a sense in comedy that you were just... And that you needed to... (laughs) Yeah, but you needed to divorce yourself from what was going on around you. I've sat in shows where I haven't found it, because I've subsequently reviewed comedy as well, yeah. where I haven't enjoyed it as well, but the whole crowd has. And and it is not the job of the comedian to make the reviewer laugh. It is the job of the comedian to make the crowd laugh. And so if everybody in the room except you is laughing, then that's not a reflection of the comedian, that's a reflection of you. Mm. And so you just, you just have to go, it wasn't for me, but they did a really good job, they made people laugh. Uh, and so there was the sense that you would never be prepared to do that with your reviews. And yeah. I remember people used to talk... And that know. sense always comes from people that only read a handful of them, of yeah, course. absolutely. And usually concerning themselves or their mates that have been shed on. But I, I just want to... I'm not trying to get out of this at all. I'm interested in it. But I just want to sort of slightly sidebar that... I mean, don't you think that reviewing comedy, stand-up comedy, of all the things to review has to be one of the most difficult and stupidest things to do. Like, I can say that to you because you've done it as well. Like, because that's what you're sort of getting at with me. It's like, you run the risk of ruining people's jokes. Yes. Uh, and a bad reviewer will do that always. And that's, uh, I try not to do that. That's fucking annoying. Yes. You run the risk of, and you are reviewing essentially, a, usually a one night stand. Yeah. Like, so they're gone. And... The very nature of comedy, uh, stand-up comedy, is that no matter how scripted it is, something different will happen each night if it is a recurring gig. So you're only doing a snapshot. Yes. And um, so, yeah, no, I get it. Like, it's a weird thing. I've, you know, I've thought and known that, my, you know, even when I was being paid very poorly and very occasionally, but paid. You to got write, paid? To write comedy review, well, just in the context of reviewing for the Dominion Post, yeah, um, very as I say, very poorly and very occasionally, but a paid reviewer, you're almost wondering why you're doing it. Yeah, definitely. Whereas I've never questioned that about a music gig. It's a different thing. So I started reviewing <coughs> because the Dom Post had a thing where they would only review the for the comedy festival. They'd only review the internationals. Yeah. And the only other outfit that was reviewing was Theatre View, who do exactly what you're talking about before. They just yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. They just write. Yeah. He got up. He told this joke that had this punchline. She said this. That this had one this was punch. funny. This yeah. one I didn't think was so funny. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And and so I can remember a comedian was talking to me about it, complaining about the lack of reviews, 
and how they, you know, people, they want pull quotes and that sort of jazz. And so I said, I'll come along and review your show. So I went along and I, and I put a hell of a lot of thought into the review. I didn't want to spoil any of the jokes. Mm. And I really honed in on the technical side of it because I knew a bit about it because... Yeah. I'd performed it, I'd read books about it, I'd listened to a lot of it, and so watched, I, yeah, watched yeah, a load. Yeah. I'd under, I understood the craft mm-hmm. um, a bit, and so I wrote this really well thought out review, and a whole bunch of other comics read it, and they really liked what I had written, and so they started inviting me to go and review their shows as well. And then, uh, so I started posting them on the blog that I'd set up, and so I really enjoyed it. In fact, this is the first year, this year, in goodness me, seven, eight years that I won't be reviewing any comedy and that's just because my work's too busy and I've got a child now and mm. so this, so I'm a bit sad about that but um, also the nature of comedy has changed so I no longer properly understand the craft anyway. Uh, it's very different to how it was and so, but yeah, it, it's hard and it's a mm. folly in many ways mm. as for the, all the reasons that you've pointed out. Mm. Um, yeah, it's a bit of a fool's errand. You... I can't remember the full details, but you basically wrote to me and said, you're a bit of a cop, lots of people think so. Um, you know, what makes you tick? Shall we have a beer sometime? Something like that. That, that was nice of me. And we did, and we did, because I'll, I'll generally, shh, I'll generally accept that kind of a challenge, or well, challenge is kind of, it's kind of a challenge, but I will accept that invitation because I've, often believe that it's good to kind of point out to people that I'm not a cunt or I'm not a full-time cunt. And I think you, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you you, you thought I was pretty great straight away. <laughs> yeah, no, I... So you, you met me and thought, this is okay. You're actually, I see your point of view a little bit. Well, you were a whatever. curiosity, right? Yeah. Like, you were the big, bad Simon Sweetman. That was how you were perceived. Right. And, you know, people within... Um, comedy Facebook groups would talk about I think you had a job at Borders did you work at Borders? Yeah I did and people would talk about going and standing behind you and critiquing the way in which you whatever you <laughs> wow. did at Borders stacked yeah. shelves and that sort of thing and that's wow. what people wanted to do yeah. and so to this mythical Simon Sweetman <laughs> what's he actually like and so I was going to find out for myself and, yeah. and so yeah I did and you know I in the same way that I would do shock comedy, it almost felt like you would do shock reviews. Yeah. And so there was there was a sense of, of, a, of a kindredness with you that I could yeah. understand. Yeah. And that I quickly found out that also you were not a terrible human being. Yeah, yeah. And I always admired the blog that you wrote for stuff. And I always thought that you were a genuinely good writer. And that's one of the things that I really respect in people is the ability to write. Um, I just wish you didn't write every day because I always felt like you would be a better writer if yeah. you if you just maybe didn't put so much output yeah. into the into the ethos, but uh, into the atmosphere. But yeah, so I meet you. But and it's I, tricky, isn't it? With the, like, if you don't have a deadline, then you need to give yourself one. Very much so. And if I don't have one, then I just stop altogether, which will please a lot of comedians and a lot of other people I know. <laughs> But they will give me nothing to do because I'm fucking hopeless at anything else. Yeah. 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 So, and so, yeah. And so, like, and then you took me to... A Joe Cocker concert, which is what I do with anyone that's annoyed me. 
But then I went, you invited me to that and George Thorogood was opening. That's right. And I went because I was more into George Thorogood than yeah. I was Joe Cocker. Yeah. But then George Thorogood was not good. He George, was... He was like a George Thorogood covers band. Yeah. That you'd see was, at a pub. He was George Thoroughly Mediocre. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was. Whereas Joe Cocker was genuinely, outstandingly yeah. good. Yeah, I still talk about it as one of the best concerts I've actually ever been to. Well, he had... I mean, I saw him out of professional obligation you know about six times i reviewed him probably more than any other international touring act because he came here all the time yeah and i over about 20 years i must have reviewed him about six times and um he was it was amazing the longevity he had for a guy who didn't write songs and also what got me was the lack of interaction with yeah. the crowd like he yeah. just wasn't interested nah I think he said maybe one thing to yeah. the audience and then other than that it was just I'm going to sing my songs but the two things he always had about him at least in his early years before he turned into a colossal drunk and then in his comeback years because I can't really speak about the stuff in the middle but the two things he always packed were a shit-hot band and a great set of songs, yeah. and that's that's why he had over half the battle won, yeah. right? Like, yeah. everyone knew 80% of the material. Yeah. If the new album, if he was going to do the dreaded two songs for the new album, it was probably like a Bob Dylan or a Bob Marley song. Yeah. So even if you didn't know his version of it, by the time you got to the chorus, you're like, I fucking love yeah. this song, or I at least know this song. Yeah, so it was a genius uh, model, really. Yeah. And it, one that not really anyone else has been able to I, follow it, to that, that level. Weird? Yeah. It seems like an He's obvious... a covers band. Yeah. He is a covers band. He is a, you know... And his versions of songs we a lot of people know better. Yeah. Now, I prefer his version of A Little Help oh, from my friends. Oh, 100%. To I'd, the Beatles version. I would say it's one of the... One of the great, I mean, this is this is sounding like an awful podcast to white dudes talking about <laughs> Beatles covers, so we can't lapse uh, into that. Um, but I would say it's one of the all-time yeah. best covers because the, the original is nothing special. No, not yeah. at all. And I can remember discovering that because I watched The Wonder Years, and so that was my yeah. gateway into that song. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, and then I found out that it was a cover, and I went and listened to the original. Mm. And oftentimes the first version you discover is your preferred version. Mm. But but I just remember listening to the Beatles version, and full disclosure, I've actually never really got the Beatles, so they're right. not my bag. But I just remember listening to it and going, Ugh, Joe's version's way better. Mm, mm. And so that was a that was a great gig. Yeah. But even no, even in the TSB arena, which is yeah. a shit venue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we did that, and then we probably lapsed into emailing each other or Facebooking each other about twice a year. Yeah. And that's really been the relationship. Yes, for what? Well, well, six, seven years. I occasionally bump into yes. you at a comedy thing yeah. or in public, and now I occasionally bump into you in the in the, in the hallways of RNZ where Correct. you're a regular contributor and I'm a sometime contributor. Um, do you do the panel? I've never done the panel. I would like to, I think, uh, or I'd be open to it, but I've done the pre-panel when I've been working yeah, up here. As a, I did the pre-panel with you recently. I've done the pre-panel about half a dozen times only. And I think I've done it two, I think I've had two sort of three day in a row runs at it um, when I've been working up there helping producing. And if they, if they asked me to do the panel, I'd have a crack at it, sure. I reckon I could do you it. You should just tell them. Say, Caitlin, I want to yeah, do the yeah. panel. Well, how did you get it? Well, I, we, we should we should leave that for a bit before, because we, we'll talk about some other stuff before we get to that. But okay. do you enjoy doing the panel? I, yes and I no. I figure you do. I do and I don't. Like, I feel... You know that bit that John Stewart did when he went on Crossfire? Yeah. And he talked yes. about 
how they do a disservice yes. because they talk about these very serious issues yeah. but in a very superficial way. Yes. Sometimes I feel that way about the panel. Like you get the list of topics and you look at them and you go, oh yeah, these are quite meaty and serious topics. Yeah. But then the nature of the show is you've got one hour and you tend to get two people who are not experts on, on any oh, of the topics. Yeah, that's right. And so consequently you end up skating over the top, which I, I'm sometimes concerned is doing a disservice to the audience. But they are making moves to get more experts mm. onto the panel now and then have the panellists talk around the experts, which I think is a really great uh, yeah, move. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. Um, Reacting and, to, etc. Like, yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, a lot of the reason I do it is because uh, I do it for business purposes. Mm-hmm. You know, I keep my name out there. And so people have heard of me and it makes you sound like a credible human being if you've done the panel and you've got a column for the Herald or you Mm. did the election night coverage on TV3. And so that makes people think that you're someone and you should be worth listening to, whereas you shouldn't. Um, It means nothing. So I guess what I'm interested in with you particularly is you're a a loudmouth who thought he was funny who basically managed to turn around the fact that you were awarded um, the dubious title of being the most offensive comedian. No, I didn't win. Well, I lost you were... to Brendan Lovegrove. <laughs> right. Who who probably invented the award. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was, yeah. I mean, he... It's... The joke... I'm not going to say the joke that he won with, <laughs> but it is genuinely one of the most offensive jokes I've ever heard in my yeah. life. Okay. Uh, and, you know, he hasn't really changed a whole lot since yeah 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 so i've only met him once but yeah i would i would say that's right i've got i'll tell my brendan lovegrove story i don't even know if he's listening if he's listening i look forward to a barrage of of communications from him so he asked me to review one of his shows Mm. and when would have this been maybe 2015 ish 2014 and i went along and it was some of the most crass racist, misogynistic material that even I wouldn't have done in 2006. Like, Mm. it was like something from the 50s. And I would have walked out if I wasn't reviewing it. And I stayed to the end, and then I wrote this review that was really harsh on Mm. them. And then I just heard from him, like, every day for the next year, (laughs) trying to rationalise and justify and criticise... And I would get a text message or a phone call or a Facebook message from him. And it just went on and on and on and on and on. And I wished I'd never written the, the review. I think mm. it's still up, actually. Mm. Uh, but it was a genuinely terrible night's comedy. However, people that I've spoken to that went to later nights that week said that he dropped a lot of the bits that I'd had a problem with. Because mm. I'd always rush home and get the review up either that night or first thing in the morning yeah, to yeah. be fair to the comic. And I don't know if he read it and adjusted accordingly or if he just adjusted because he recognised that he'd had a horrible night's work. Uh, but the rest of the, that season was apparently not as awful as the night that I went to. Um, but I liked Love... He was one of my first New Zealand comedy heroes. Because mm. I used to see him on Pulp TV in the 90s. Mm. And what I used to find amazing is that he could stand up there and be really horrible to the audience, but they'd love him. And there are very few comics that can actually get away with that. And yeah. He was a master of it. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. You just you've. Um, I was gonna when you were saying that, I was thinking, God, you're just describing like eighty percent of my communications with people. <laughs> Please come and review my show or listen to my album, and then just abuse afterwards. Yeah. But but um, you just reminded me that. Probably, have, oh, I mean, he's been gone for a while now, but a while back, 
a decade or so ago, I reviewed a Ewan Gilmore show, and it was the only time, that was his name, eh? The Westie. Yes. It was the only time I'd ever seen him. So I was looking forward to seeing him because, you know, it's that similar sort of thing. He was one of the mainstays. Yep. He was one of those guys that, and I thought it was a little bit of a one-trick pony shtick, but I, you know, I, I liked some of what he was about. He seemed like an interesting dude. So I went along, and I thought, fuck, this is, this is shit. This is really disappointing. And I wrote this review and I got um, quite a bit of abuse from people um, about it along the lines of he's one of the best known, so yeah. leave him alone. Yeah. Um, but I, I heard, and I'm not, I'm, I'm sort of taking my time with this because I'm, I'm really not trying to put across that it's any sort of hero story. It was just interesting. But I heard from a person tied to the venue because he must have been doing like three nights or four nights but I heard that he um, basically he came into a discussion around that review and he basically just owned it and went this guy's called me out everything he said's right I had a shit night I wasn't good this sucks and he picked his game up for the rest good of the week good on you I think so. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I didn't didn't make me want to go back or anything like that. But I, that's pretty impressive if that happened. Yeah. And and not and not because it's validating my opinion. It's just like what a what a what an amazing thing to have happen. I've ha I've had that happen once or twice with musicians with albums where they've actually gone, man, this is gutting to read that you don't like it. But I think um, you might be right, kind of thing. And I'm always amazed when that happens because I'm not writing this stuff because I think I'm right. Yeah. I'm writing it because that's what I think. And I, you, you know, know we're putting, the difference. we put ourselves out there with performing comedy, making an album, whatever. Yeah. And it's a lot of our soul goes into it. And yeah. To have someone criticize that is a, that's an intensely personal criticism. Sure. And so I can, I have had terrible reviews written about me and it's impossible not to get upset about them. Mm. Um, yeah. Anyone who says they don't read them or they don't care. Full neither of, shit. of those things are true. Exactly. Yeah. But then it's what you then do after, right? Yeah, and yeah. so in your story, you and took on board what you said and and, and adjusted. That's really. I mean, he's a, he was just a really nice guy. Yeah, that's what everyone sort of said about him. Yeah, you know? and uh, that, that I just I'd forgotten that story. It sort of just came back to me. That's interesting. Like, so you ditch comedy and you get into PR. Yes. And you you well you retain an interest in comedy, but. Uh, you ditch I re performing. I entered the more growing up phase of my life. Yeah. So how old am I now? I'm 20... 26, 27. I'd spent... No, I must have been 28, 29. I'd spent eight years working in the public service for various... in various comms roles. And then mm. I just had enough. I got too much working in the public service because you need to get sign-off from 4,000 people to do anything. And it was incredibly risk-averse. And I think my final gig was at the Department of Corrections working under Minister Collins, who was the Minister of Corrections at the time. I was like, this is this is not for me at all. Yeah. So then I went and door knocked on a whole bunch of PR firms and got lucky that one was hiring and they admired my moxie. And so, yeah, I started working in PR, which um, there's sort of a glory-ish thing attached to PR, but I don't know why. Um, and I started working on things that would clash with my values. I did a lot of work for oil exploration companies and never tobacco. Uh, the firm I worked for had a very hard and fast rule about not working for tobacco, but would work for alcohol, which I always struggled to reconcile. I mm. always felt like alcohol does quite a bit of social harm, so if you're going to try the social harm business as a defense mechanism, you can't do that. But yeah, did oil exploration... 
and uh, you know, was swimming with the big boys and girls at that point, um, and felt very self-important and would be taking clients to go and meet ministers. In fact, I actually met Simon Bridges back then when he was the minister of... I can't even remember now. Um, and I came away from meeting him going, I always thought ministers would be smarter than that. And it's this, and it's left this indelible mm. impression on me that the dude is just not that bright. And, that's, and nothing I've ever seen has changed that perspective of him. He's nice. As a human being, he's actually, he, he was a decent guy. Yeah. But just underwhelming. Um, in fact, that's how I felt about Key as well. So I took clients to meet John Key. I will never understand at all people's description of him as having charm or charisma. Oh, I don't, no, I can I, see I, it. I, I, I can't. Now, that might be because I'm a dim bulb, but... I can't. I just cannot see it. And, um, you know, I, I've I've stopped having that discussion, debate, whatever, with my dad because he just says, you're not interested in national and you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't support whoever was there, which is not, not uh, well, it's probably true, but it's, it, it probably is true. It's probably my, true of me too. My, my values do not align with national, but I might give a charismatic leader of national an ear and I just never felt it with him I thought he was a, a horrible kind of I just didn't believe him just a smarmy you know a policy aside I just thought he was a smarmy horrible like unbelievable character so there's, there's, there's these amazing stories about him and I don't know how true they are I'll preface them with that and that when he was being constructed as a politician and yeah. what he ran in Helensville in the 2005 election I think it might even be 2002 anyway it was determined that he was one day going to be leader of the National Party because of, of his backstory and who he was and, mm. and so when they were putting him together it was decided that his that New Zealanders would accept a politician who was worth 50 million that was the ceiling at which New Zealanders would accept however from what I understand, having talked, spoken to several people that know a lot more, he was worth three or four times mm -hmm. that, 150, 200 million. But because New Zealanders would apparently reject someone who was worth that much money, they leaked that he was worth 50 million to the NBR rich list, and that was always the figure that then stuck. And that became people just, he was worth yeah. 50 million. And, yeah. and yet, despite being worth more money than anybody I know will ever earn... People just felt like he was just what a good old John Key. And well, fifty million to New Zealanders is an enormous amount to a lot, but also, it you almost think, oh yeah, that's it. I'm one. I'm a little bit of hard work and one lucky yeah. break away from yeah. that. The but two hundred million is two hundred million is. I'm not prepared to you know burn a whole race of people to earn that money. Yeah, like, yeah. And so, and I found that interesting and. But he was also, he was a dork. That was the thing with him. He was mm. actually just a, a, a dork. Mm. Um, but he, he genuinely liked meeting people. And contrast him with the, the current leader, I'm told that Key, when he would go out to the shopping malls and shake hands and kiss babies, genuinely enjoyed that engagement. Mm -hmm. Whereas I've been told that Bridges just hates it. Right. has no time for it and that might be because Bridges has a sense that people don't like him and yeah. whereas everywhere Key went he was kind of the opposite almost yeah, yeah exactly right. yeah yeah, um, 
No, well, that's it. It's like, you know, what do you, you know, how did you feel about your third comedy gig versus your sixth? <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> like... Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. I was, it was a different perspective. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so I'm working in PR and I'm meeting politicians. And Actually, I've got a great Simon Bridges. My favourite Simon Bridges story is, so one of the people that I got to know over the course of my career is Matthew Hooten. And he's someone who I now consider a friend, even though we don't share a lot of political values. Mm. And one night, Matthew and I were having a drink at the D4 um, and... My wife, Kim, was there. Now, Kim hates politics, and she's completely apolitical and has no interest in it, uh, which makes conversations between us difficult sometimes. But Simon Bridges and Matthew Hooten were very good friends, and Simon was at the bar, and he oiled his way over to our table, and he sat down, and he just started talking. And he's talking, 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 talking. And then Kim says, sorry, who are you? And he just goes, and Kim says, no, I'm serious. Who are you? And he said, oh, I'm Cabinet Minister Simon Bridges, and then proceeded to talk. And I've always just gone, who describes themselves that way? Yeah. Like, who, if someone Addicting. says to me, who are you? Yeah. If yeah. someone says, who are you? I don't say... I'm P.R. Trout. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's such a, such a weird way. And I guess he must just put so much stock in that as being his identity that, that that's that's why he did it yeah but just he was so shocked that Kim didn't well he know. was gobsmacked he wasn't recognised yeah 100% yeah. So 100% he, now admittedly in Wellington there's a lot of people that do know but the thing that people in politics always forget is that the majority of people don't care about politics yeah but also you know when you're meeting a person in the moment I feel like it's irrelevant uh, what their backstory is, who that who they've crafted themselves to be. It's about who they actually are. Yeah. So a name will suffice. Yes. You know, like just yes. just tell me your name, and I'll decide whether I like your face and what you've got to say, and then you know we'll go from there. Yeah. And you know we 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 each can play with what we know about each other's backstories. If anything, like that that can come into play if it needs to, but it shouldn't. I it should be an equal playing field when you, you know, we're supposed to be sharing this planet and we share the same species. So, you know, why can't we be level at some point? We all start at zero when we yeah. meet for the first time. I went, going back to the Matterhorn, when Hong Kong was being, Hong Kong, King Kong was being shot here. Yeah. And Adrian Brody was in town. I was at the Matterhorn and I backed into him and I spilled his drink. And I did that thing where I pretended not to know who he was. And he just ran with it and pretended he wasn't Adrian Brody. And then after we'd been talking for about 15 minutes, like, look, i got to come clean. I'm actually Adrian Brody. I'm here to shoot King Kong. Uh, and I just remember that he was just a nice guy. He was just, and I, you yeah. know, we were just pretending that he wasn't who he was and we were both running with it. Yeah. And so I think maybe he was enjoying pretending to be an anonymous human being instead yeah. of a film star. Yeah. Um, and that was cool. But not Cabinet Minister Simon Bridges. He had to get that one out of the gate. <laughs> um, so yeah so I'm in this PR firm and then like I said I left when they told me that I had to choose between my arty side and my PR side and arts wins every time and then I went and worked for an NGO head of comms there so had you been getting into trouble with that though had you been writing provocative no I don't this think is so. the ruminator that's was right happening. that's the and, ruminator yeah so you, there was no no particular like you fucked a bunch of people off or anything no like that. well I was written behind a pseudonym yes right? so yeah. no one fully and, yeah knew yeah. yeah that's right yeah and so that 
you know, probably the best thing I've ever done for my career because what would happen is that that generated a lot of interest in who the ruminator was and there was mm. names being bandied around that weren't me mm. and so I'd get a lot of journalists sending me DMs on Twitter saying, can we meet? Because they just wanted to find out who I was. And then I'd be like, sure. And then I'd meet with them and they'd be like, who the hell is this guy? And I'd be like, you're a person in my phone book now. Uh, and now I maintain relationships with with a lot of those journalists that initially reached out. And Judith Collins, actually, she, um, she was, it was just when Twitter was exploding in New Zealand for politicians. And so she was following everyone who followed her. So she started following me. And I sent her a DM and asked if she would like to write a guest post for The Ruminator, and she did. And I think that was what gave us credibility. And so then people took The Ruminator seriously, and so consequently I then I did a series where I interviewed Grant Robertson, Jacinda mm. Ardern, Andrew Little. I interviewed Judith. Um, and it was largely down to Judith writing that, that guest post. So I've always, always had a soft spot for her in that respect. Um, I still talk to her every now and again. Wow. Yeah. I sort of ignored you before when you said you were friends with Matthew Houghton. Um, but I'll go back to that now because, <laughs> because now you're naming all sorts of people I don't like. Yeah. I can't imagine a person really wanting to be friends with. I, I respect the idea that you can be friends with someone who you ideologically are, you know, not, not fully aligned with or, yeah. or possibly even completely opposed to. But is there, I guess... Is there anything in him as a human being? Yeah. So, firstly, I want to get out of the way that it's my privilege to be able to be friends with people that I'm ideologically opposed to because mm -hmm. a lot of my ideology is intellectual in that, as covered earlier, I'm a middle-class white guy, mm -hmm. right? And so politics is a thing that I observe and take an interest in. It's not something that has a massive impact on yes. my life. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. for me personally, it doesn't make a huge difference who's in power the middle class, my life stays relatively untouched. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a big lefty uh, because I care about other people. And were you always? Yeah. yeah. Always. Always, always, Sort always. of raised that way. Yeah, my parents are both teachers. Yeah, yeah. Um, my mother is a secret national voter. She won't share... My, I don't know if my dad knows. Um, but my dad is a hard, died-in-the-wool lefty. Mm. Um, sort of of that kind of working class what chris trotter would call a tuckery man style lefty he's not real good on the gays or on the maoris but he's, mm. he's he's for the working class we're working we're getting there we're making him more progressive in his twilight years um i did an internship with bill english when i was at university uh and that was because i was a lefty but i didn't just want to be a blind lefty i wanted to at least have a perspective from how the other side mm. saw it mm. and so during one of my classes we were given the option to be an intern uh when i was at university and i just emailed bill he'd just been knifed as leader by don brash and said you must have a lot of time on your hands would you take me on as an intern and he did and I was, had a great time with him for six months, and I got an understanding. Still disagreed with that perspective, but mm. at least I could understand it you and could see argue it. it. And you could argue against it better. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And so Matthew, how I became friends with Matthew was after I left that PR firm, and I started working for an organisation, they were doing a big campaign and they'd already hired him. And so I can remember going up in the lift the first day I was going to meet him, I was like, I'm going to hate this guy. He's awful, he's terrible, mm. he's, he's just a right-wing fuckwit. He's a really likeable human being, really likeable guy, very charming, um, really nice, uh, 
incredibly loyal as well. Mm. That's the once you get through and you're a friend of his, it feels like you, you'll be a friend of his for life. Right. Um, and so, and we did. And in fact, well, that's, I, a, that's a good warning. Yeah. So stay away yeah, if yeah, you don't yeah. want that. Well, no, I just, I mean, no, no I, I, I get everything you're saying. I guess, and I don't, you know, it's futile to sort of pick someone apart like this when they're not here. I mean, he, I know he can handle it, but. Um, I get the loyalty thing, but in terms of his TV and radio appearances, it it just sort of comes across as insipid and sort of bought and paid for. It's not. It's absolutely not. Right. This is this is everybody thinks that that he is bought and paid for, mm. um, and he's not. In fact, he is one of the most upfront and honest when it comes to making his declarations of conflicts. Of all PR practitioners that I know, I know of several other very high-profile mm. people in the punditry world who do not declare their conflicts that I know that they are conflicted on. Mm. And Matthew always does, but as a consequence of him doing so, he then gets called up when he doesn't have a conflict and doesn't declare it, and people are like, oh, he must be working for the National Party or the ACT Party. And he actually, it's not. It's He has a set of core values that he genuinely believes in. He said to me, this is going back a few years now, he said to me that he believes in the drug policy of the Netherlands, the welfare policy of China, and the law and order policy of Saudi Arabia. And I had to go and look up the welfare policy of China, and there isn't one. Yeah, and I was so, just say, yeah. Is it? <laughs> so, so that's, and, and the law and order policy of Saudi Arabia, not big on that either. Mm. Um, but just as he's interesting to talk to and spar with and sure we both write columns for the Herald now and we mm. talk about what each other's written and mm. we we argue about it and and he's just I learned more about PR and government relations from him in the four or five months I was working alongside him than I did from any other human being in the in my entire career. He's probably taught me more than anyone. Now, I must, I've probably got a really poor understanding of this, but I've always been a little bit baffled about how PR people, you, you know, you, yourself, Matthew, two examples right there, are paid to write columns for mainstream newspapers when a big part of your job is pulling those things to pieces or putting them together for other people or helping other, you know, helping other people damage control or understand or work with those. It, it feels a tiny bit to me like an extra clipping of the ticket, which could work for you, I suppose. It's absolute. I have a very... But what's the, what's the sort of moral defence of it or, or the ethical defence of it or explanation, well, so ex explanation, rather? I have a very strong... I will not write about anything to do with the client. Mm -hmm. Um... Or if it is to do with a client, I'll declare it. In fact, there's only been... But you're sort of self-managed in that regard, right? Yes. You're, you're, you're saying this is what you yeah, believe, and I admire that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And but if you get caught out, I, if a person gets caught out, that's on them. Then they should, they should lose yeah, their yeah, column yeah, instantly. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And so they, I have written one thing about an organisation that I've done work for, which was the Drug Foundation, but the thing that I wrote the column on didn't at all relate to... The body of work that I had done for them and I made sure that it was declared at the bottom of the column as well that mm. I had done work and if you go and if you read every single one of Matthew's columns you'll see that he also makes a declaration on several of his mm. um, and so it is it's a high degree of trust mm. um, there's not many PR people out there commentating on politics like Matthew and I do like we've very firmly nailed our colors to the mast mm. right mm. like he is 
a crazy far right guy and I'm a crazy left wing guy. Yeah, and so yeah. anyone who engages our us as a PR person, they know what our values are. They know what they're getting. Yeah. yeah. And in fact, there was an organization that didn't want to work with me and my firm because of my column. And I sat down with my business partner and I talked about this with her. And I said, is this going to be a problem, do you think? And she said, well, no, it actually acts as quite a good filter. And that if mm. somebody doesn't want to work with us because of what you've said, they're, we don't want to work with them. They're probably a cunt. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so I really admired that in, in her for saying that. Yeah. Um, and so... Well, for acknowledging that for whatever business it loses, it, it brings in. Exactly. Yeah. And I think it's definitely yeah. had a net positive yeah um rather than a net loss um and so i understand the concern with people and I, there are some uh people john drinnan for example mm. was always convinced that matthew and i were writing at the behest of of our clients and i never have and as far as i know matthew never has um but the problem is is that the pool of people in new zealand who could do what we do is so small that there's going to be conflicts everywhere. I don't yes. think that this country's too small not to. Yeah, it's a bit like it's a bit like the old uh, book reviewing game, right? Like the bu- book reviewers are usually writers of a kind. Yes, mostly published authors. Yeah. occasionally journalists, um, and so and sometimes journalists that moonlight writing short stories or whatever. Yeah. So. You know they're going to know each other. Yeah. There's going to be um, favourites and there's going to be conflicts and there and there is. And I don't know how you resolve that. Well, I just don't, don't write don't. anything that's yeah. conflicted. Yeah. That's it. also it's pretty easy for John Drennan to get the wrong end of the stick, right? Like he's sort of fighting. He lives he's, at the wrong end. Of yeah. The stick. He's sort of fighting him, beating himself up in a, in a in a battle for relevancy that's not there. Well, he, he lost his Herald column. Yeah. And I don't even think he does his website anymore. Um, in fact, the last I heard is that he had basically just gone full turf, and yeah, I, I don't know. I always felt a bit sorry for He's him. He's a bit like uh, Sean Plunkett without the platforms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one might say I couldn't possibly comment. Um, yeah, I mean, there's that whole class of older white dude pundit mm. and I don't want to be I don't want to become that I'll no well that's what, that's what I was going to say like where do you how does that sit with you because is it like sort of seeing your future you know like, well like, I think when I feel like my views are no longer progressive and are more reactionary I think that would be the time I'd want to give it up but that's what I say from now I suspect that if I reach that stage mm. I'd probably desperately want the platforms more mm. so they should have a they should have a shelf life in fact you know the way media's going we'll all probably lose our writing gigs anyway mm. um, but yeah you just it's really difficult but you're to, one of the few that's because you've come about it from the opposite end you've basically built built a built a job a career a platform and then been given a writing gig yes. right so you know if, you, if it's the first thing to go it's almost like it should be the first thing to go yeah, like safeguard yourself yeah. uh, I, I do the complete opposite you know I it's I don't know how you find it but coming up with something different to say every week it's very hard yeah I don't need to do that now so there isn't a pressure on me um, when you were doing the blog for stuff yeah. and you were writing daily, yeah. how did you do it? What was your process? The process was just 
sit down at a computer and write. I mean, I was doing, um, I think it's 2008 or nine. I was doing an extraordinary amount of work. I was um, writing reviews for the newspaper of albums and gigs. I was writing a daily blog every day for stuff. I was writing for about 10 months under a pen name for the Herald, where I did uh, album reviews, film reviews, and I interviewed a celebrity musician or film star. Who, what was your pen name? It was really prosaic. It was Mark Reed. No one ever busted me on it. No one ever <laughs> cared or knew. I just did it because they were going to pay me, and I... Th- um, and then they had a change of editor and the editor freaked out when he found out that someone had signed off on uh, a rogue person. Whether it was because they knew it was me or not, I don't know, but they were basically like, who's this rogue person operating under a pen name? We didn't agree to that. And it was sort of put to me like, you can um, you can publish under your own name or not at all. Would you have lost your stuff? I, I think I would have lost everything at the Dom Post. Yeah. I, I asked a person that was connected with the Dom Post that I knew well enough to ask without it raising alarms, and he was like, you're kind of dead in the water. You know, you're just going to get pulled. And I was getting paid more to write for the Herald, but I knew it was going to be short term. And at that point, it was like, well, what do you do? It's kind of like cutting off your... Knows really so, but I was doing that and I was doing reviews on Good Morning TV. I had a weekly, a weekend spot on News Talk ZB doing sort of very short pundit type and sort of commentary stuff. Um, and I had a day job, so I was doing all of that. Fuck, you were everywhere, weren't yeah. You? I was, and I was, and I was, but I was also not anonymous because my, my face and my was on TV and on a um, website, but I was uh, a civilian with a job, yeah. And so I was anonymous in the sense that I sat and worked in an office, and no one in the office knew or gave a fuck that I was do, doing all these other things until I probably started to write about bands they cared about and barbecue rigging. Yeah, yeah, that sort of thing. Until that <laughs> sort of started to creep, and then some of them probably got got a bit aware of it. Yeah. So I didn't really have a process. The process was just like, and I wasn't making loads of money. These are all poorly paid things, as was my day job. So I was making a good living for the one and only time in my life through working really, really hard. Yeah. And uh, I enjoyed it, mostly. And I guess one of the reasons I was able to do it was there was mm, social media wasn't as big. So I was doing all that before I had a Facebook page. Yeah. So I've always, I always categorise writers into two categories because I'm very binary that way. Vomiters or crafters. Mm. And you're either someone who will just sit down and bash out 500 words, mm. or you're someone that will think really hard and you'll write a little bit and then you'll go away and come back and mm. finesse and write a little bit more. And those are always my two categories of writers. Mm. Are you either of those? Yeah, I'm sort of occasionally both, I suppose. But um, I'm, I'm happy to be called the vomiter more often because that's more realistic. Yeah. I mean, as a, as a um, deadline journalist, which I've been... And, and blogger and stuff um, there's no choice yeah you know you don't get to and you know my experience with the blog was generally the ones I put the most effort into and wrote and there were some really thoughtful um, pieces about some pretty personal stuff and um, the ones I put the most thought into generally and took the longest um, got the least interest and the ones that I spat out not 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 knowing I was winding someone up but spat out going I'm fucking tired I've got an early start in the morning. If I don't publish, some dickhead will write a comment going, ha, you said you were going to publish every day and you haven't, so I'll just get it done. And I might shit out 400 words on a really 
Prozac basic generic topic 100 comments yeah and I didn't pat myself on the back for that or anything it wasn't like yeah wicked I've still got I've still got the secret it was just like, oh well that was a good that that's funny that that's the thing that sticks and I always tried to have just a, a, a range of topics really like you know every now and then you get someone go oh not many comments lately so you've been told by someone to write something controversial it's like how people think that those conversations ev- I mean I, I, think, I think now those conversations do happen a little bit I do think with some editors they do you know I mean Rachel Stewart can only have a career because a person says we need it. We need a hit job. We need someone she to. She doesn't write. have a career though anymore. Not anymore. She didn't, and good. But like, that's what sort of happened there. Was you know that 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 the, the turf stuff that she was writing. That was hatchet job yeah. journalism where someone was saying who's going to be our voice for. Like she might have believed it. Like, that's fine. But uh, an editor was absolutely going to her and going, time for you to. Time for you to fucking load another round in the assault rifle and hit out. With oh, this. see, I'm I'm I, always deeply sceptical so. of that. I think that would have been happening. I have I have literally never been asked by the Herald to write on anything. Yeah. At all, all of my pieces are. Well, they're not going to they because they, they know they know you've got an audience. They know that you. I'm got their token contacts. lefty. They know that, and also. Well, now they've paywalled you as well, I suppose, but also they know that you're going to bring people to your column because you're recognisable. So that's fucking shooting a gift horse in the mouth if they tell you what to do. Because nine times out of ten, if they tell you what to do, it's going to raise your heckles. You're going to yeah, not want to do it. I had one column they didn't run through legal concerns, mm. which I'm still angry about. Mm. A piece about the banks, actually. They're scared of the banks. I won't name which bank. Mm. Um, and that's the only piece. But no, so, I'm, I don't. Most, as far as I'm aware, people like Rach. They just write what they think, and it's just up to the mostly the yeah. editor if they have an appetite to to publish yeah. that. Because I sit down Sunday. Sunday rolls around. Sunday's writing day for me. And Kim says, "What are you going to write about this week?" And I go, "Fuck, I don't know." Mm. And then I might fire out a text to a variety of MPs and staffers from across the house, left and right wing. Anything, you got any ideas? Then I'll get a bunch of self-serving bullshit back. And then I'll usually discard all of that. And then I'll probably just write another piece about why I think Simon Bridges is terrible. Yeah. But that's, I vomit. I yeah. And sometimes I can bash out a 700-word column in like half an hour. Yeah. And then I'll leave it and then I'll come back and I'll have a look at it and I'll give it to Kim and she hates politics. So she'll often, she's a really good filter for mm. pulling stuff out that is really insidery. Yeah, yeah. Um, Don't understand that at all. That's, yeah. That's too, it's too boring. Too, it's yeah, niche. Yeah, yeah. And so I'll pull that out. Yeah. Um, and so. But look, you know, to go back to it for a sec, um, I think it was probably in a way thinking about it now, it was, well, I always probably thought this. I, I set up the, the daily thing for myself with stuff. They only wanted me to publish three time, two or three times a week, and I said, I'm going to be no good at this if I don't do it all the time. And so I did it. And in, in a way, that was probably... I often said to people that having a daily deadline was a lot easier than having a weekly one. I think if you had to publish a column once a week, and I, you know, I as a reader, I grew up admiring things like Steve Braunius' back page of The Listener, and mar- like looking forward to getting The Listener on a Monday to read his back page first, and going, how does he fucking do this? Yeah. Every week, it's worth reading. Yeah. I, I may not know the topic or anything about it to begin with, 
but he's taking me on a whimsical, funny yeah. journey. And imagining what his process was to do that. And if I had to do that once a week, and I've had I have had some weekly columns and stuff over the years or weekly contributions, but I find them very hard yeah. because there's kind of more pressure writing on it. There was this there was an escape valve of Oh, well, if you don't like this, come back tomorrow. There'll be something else. If you don't like that, I guarantee I'll get it right. You know, was kind of my background thinking. I guarantee, I mean, when you're writing for everyone, you're writing for no one. Yeah. It's great, like, if you're doing it all the time because you're eventually going to surprise a person. And it's like a muscle, isn't it? Like, yeah. So while I said earlier, yeah, I wish you'd written less, at the same time, the more you write, the better you are. At. Oh, there's match fitness to it. Like, yeah. uh, the hardest times for me doing that were always sort of mid-January because after a while they would force you to take the the yeah. time off. You'd always have to have the stats off, but the first couple of years doing the blog, I asked if I could write through and, you know, publish on the 28th of December and stuff, and they let me, and then it was kind of like no one's reading it. And I was, it was one of those great sort of, I mean, I've never been good at monetizing anything, but one of those great sort of lost leader things. I'm like, I don't care if anyone's reading it. I need to do this. Like, And then, yeah, when I would have three weeks off, the hardest, you know, the first sort of week of February or something like that was always the, yeah. felt like being back in the fucking office yeah. after a holiday. Yeah. It really did. It was like, I don't know how to do this yeah. anymore. Yeah. No, I can, I can yeah. absolutely relate totally. to that. Yeah. Yeah. So when do you get into doing like... TV and radio work with regard to your job and and what bonus was it having been on stage as a comedian in terms of speaking to an audience basically having you know well I think that there's the confidence of being a yeah. white dude combined yeah. with having then been on stage which also came about because of the confidence of being you kind of go well, I can do of course I can do that yeah, 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 I've yeah. waded through life with no barriers yeah and so how did I so I knew the producer for The Nation, and she had made a vague offhand comment about getting me on as one of the panellists. And I was going up to Auckland, and I messaged her, and I said, I'm going to be in Auckland on the, this day, I know you're screening, will you have me on as a panellist? And I think I could feel the eye roll down the cell phone. Yeah. And she said, oh yeah, right, I'll do it. And so I was on with, can't remember who it was, but Jamie White, the former act yeah. leader, was one of the other panelists. Now, God, that'd be tough. Work. He'd be tough to work with. So I had inadvertently ruined Jamie White's career. Yeah. So well, thank he, you. He, yeah. <laughs> he'd done an interview of the Ruminator. I wasn't the interviewer. Yeah. But, but I had the spoken yeah, to yeah, the yeah. interviewer and I had said, "Prep them." <laughs> the one question I want you to—you can ask anything you want—but the one question I want you to ask Jamie White is, "Where does he stand on incest?" And it wasn't as a gotcha question. I just wanted to know, as a libertarian, was he consistent? Mm. And so uh, the piece, Tim Bat actually was the writer. Oh, he yeah. interviewed Jamie and he wrote the piece up. And it, like halfway down, it's mentioned. And I asked him about incest and he said the state really has no business in interfering in the bedrooms of people, which a lot of people have some sympathy for that perspective. And I can remember I got home and I got a phone call from a friend of mine that worked at the Herald. He rang me and he said, your blog is leading the Herald. And I was like, oh God, why? And I jumped online and this lead story was that Jamie White was okay with incest. And this story went on for like three or four days to the point where John Key was up. Proudest moment of my life. John Key was asked at a media stand-up, where do you stand on incest? And for one moment, I had lowered the tone of the entire country <laughs> yeah. to my level. Yeah. Uh, and Jamie White... Oh, you must have felt like 
putting the old robe on and going back on a stand-up tour. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. It was equal parts terrifying yeah, but amazing. Yeah. Um, can I, and can I... <laughs> he still remembered as the as the incest guy. Like whenever his name bubbles up now, that's what people remember him for. But anyway, so I could, I was on with him, and mm. I was I was really concerned he was going to remember. He didn't, so that mm. was good. But he had a crack at the Greens. Now I had been the head of communications and the head of policy for the Green Party before this, and I'd come out. And he'd had a crack at the Greens. And I had said to him straight away without thinking something along the lines of really rich of you to say that, Jamie, but at least they've been in Parliament. And the producers loved that. They loved that there was this panellist who was just having a crack like that. Really adversarial. You know, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so they invited me back a lot. Um, and So I was going to say, I mean, you're sort of preempting that in a way, but, yeah, do you go into... A first gig like that, when it's a, a new thing, and it's obviously a, a, a bit of a make or break situation, you know, and you don't want to flop on TV, and you and you want to see if you can come back, if anything, or at least, at least, you know, acquit yourself well. Is there a little sort of pep talk you give yourself? No. Are, you, are you going, you better make this one count, and, uh, you know, not just these are your talking points, but, you know... I'm cognizant that it's my audition. I'm aware yeah. of that fact, yeah. but I don't think I, I don't. I probably work harder for that one than I do any subsequent ones. Yes, um, it's a foot in the door situation. Yeah, yeah and yeah, you yeah. don't want to fuck. This oh, I'm up. not suggesting that you're like you staring know, in the mirror, staring going, in the mirror. You've going, got this. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. No, I don't well, do are that. you talking to me? Yeah, <laughs> no, whatever. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. So no, but uh, in a in a philosophical way, you kind of are. You just yes, not, yeah, yeah, yeah. But what I did is I went back and I watched earlier episodes of it to see what the sort of thing they wanted mm. from their panellists. Mm. And I would also see the sorts of things that they didn't want um, or what I thought looked terrible. Really shaped my views, actually, doing that panel mm. because... And this is this sort of helps guide me to where I am now with my life. Uh, I realised that there was a real lack of diversity on those panels. And uh, it was always dudes more often than not white dudes and so i implemented a rule where i said i will not appear on this panel if there's no gender diversity i just won't do it it was a real pain in the ass for the producers because male pundits are far easier to find there's Mm -hmm. so many more of them because we're always putting our hands up going pick me pick me pick me um whereas women are they don't tend to do it even though they've most of them have better insights than men and more considered and more thoughtful. And so that was the that was really the first time I recognised that as a as a syndrome syndrome. And so I just I was annoying and so I got invited back less frequently because I had this hard and fast rule that I wouldn't do it if there wasn't any gender diversity on board. Um and that is true for every speaking engagement I do. I there's always got to be gender diversity. Um Well not this one. No, this one's just two dudes. <laughs> no, if, if it's just two people, yeah, yeah. it's harder. Yes. Um, and so... No, and I'm not I'm not for a second uh, trying to mock that um, caveat that you've put. Yeah, That's and good. so that was... And so that was... Then that was the case when I first started on the panel as well. So how I got that was... So my wife and I, um, we were trying for a child and it became... Uh, apparent that it wasn't working and so um, we ended up going through the infertility clinic and we had to 
we had a child through IVF after five rounds, I think it was, before it worked. Mm. But we'd, we'd written about it. We started blogging about it. Yeah, you it. made that very public news yeah, to, so, to people who wanted to follow it. Yeah. Well, that's right, because we, yeah. we, we'd gone looking for other stories of other people that had gone through it, and we couldn't find anything except for people who'd written stories that would always end with, and now I've got my beautiful baby. Happily ever after, yeah. And at the time, we, would, we didn't know if that was going to be the case or not. So we... Kim and I decided we would write it as it was happening uh, so that people could get the warts and all look of it. And I, and I wrote this first one, and the first one was after we'd been going through hell for about three years. Mm. Uh, and it just exploded. Put it on the room and it took off. It went worldwide. Mm. Um, and uh, one of the producers at RNZ read it. They got in touch with me. It was Jesse Mulligan's producer. And she said, oh, I've just read your blog and it's really fantastic and we'd really like to have you on the the Jesse Mulligan show. All right. And I knew Jesse because we'd done stand-up together back in Wellington many years ago. And um, so I went on the show and I talked about it and we had a lovely back and forth and ha, 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 ha. And then um, two, we- two things happened up from that interview. The first was the producer of Jesse's show was also one of the producers for the panel. And she said, I think you'd be a really great panellist the show with Jim Mora um, will put you down and then they got in touch but the weirder thing that happened was I got a phone call later that afternoon from a woman and the woman said I heard your interview on RNZ and then I went and read your blog and then I looked up your phone number on your your company's website and that's how I've got your phone number and I just wanted to tell you that I was also going through infertility uh, and what worked for me was when my husband and I switched to just doing it doggy style. And I was like, whoa, okay. Thank, thank you for your helpful <laughs> advice. <Yep. laughs> uh, and it was just so strange. Uh, and I'll never forget that. And so that it didn't help. My child was not born through the methods that she recommended. Um, but it was just very strange. And so that was that was how I got on onto the, the panel. But we continued to write uh about our journey and it was just an incredible series of demoralizing defeats uh i wouldn't wish ivf or having to go through it on anybody it's Mm. just horrible i went back so kim and i always vowed that we'd always try and help anyone that was going through it and so five six months ago now i went and i spoke at uh the infertility support group and I told them our story, and I said right at the beginning, look, I need to tell you that the end of the story is that we did end up getting a child, and I know that that's not what you want to hear, and I know that that's not going to be the case for everyone. But I took them through our story, and they liked it, and had a lot of questions. But it's just, it's so horrible, and it's so sad, and a lot of people can sympathize with it, but I think unless you've been through it, it's really hard to empathize with. Mm-hmm. Um, and you'd always get friends... Well, they wouldn't really talk to you because all of our friends would have kids and so they wouldn't, they'd feel bad about coming to see you or you, inviting you to things because they'd feel like they were rubbing your face in it that they had kids and you didn't. Um, and so we had a really hellish three or four years where we basically didn't leave the house, didn't see anyone and it was just, it was really grim. Um, but yeah, that was how I got on the panel. Uh, and I said then, <laughs> uh, I won't go on unless my co-panelist is a woman. Uh, and the only thing that makes me sad about that is that I'll never get to do the panel of Stephen Franks. And I'd really like to do the panel Why? of Stephen Franks. Because he's so objectionable. Right. Like, all I'm, of his values are you just... You want a good battle. Yeah. 
And I went to school with his son, who's a, who was really nice. Mm. And I always found it really hard to reconcile that this man who equated gay marriage to marrying your dog, his son was such a lovely human being. They cycle through quite a few people on the panel. I'm quite impressed. Like, there's quite a few of you that are repeat... I mean, I presume there's the odd person they get and go, like anything with radio, and go, you know what, they weren't actually doing yeah. great. We won't use them again. So that 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 happens with numbers as well. But there's quite a few names attached to it. Yes. And there's quite a few that cycle back. Yep. Yep. There's, so what I understand is that Jim used to have a favourite list when Jim right. was the host. Yeah. I was not on the favourite list. So you were doing it back then, though, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I did that's it with, you my first few yeah. times with Jim Moore. Yeah. Um, and... Boy, he loved the America's Cup. Always used to talk about that. I have no interest in it. But um, he had a favourite list of people that he'd get back all the time. Right. I wasn't you on that. Not, yeah. No. Um, I was a bit, bit too adversarial, I think. Yeah, and you just in general too, right? Yeah. Like, you know, if you already had his list, it'd be pretty hard to get on it. Yeah. It's fun. It's fun. I've done it with Michelle Bogue a couple of times. Yeah. And that is actually exhausting. That yeah. is, like it's emotionally draining yeah. and it's exhausting yeah. and it's hard I bristle when I hear her on it because I just think like it's, it's I, I can't work her out I just cannot work her out I, I think just, she's real yeah I think she is too and I know she's respected on the panel as being good talent you know I know they love using her she's forthright yeah so there's that yeah 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 exactly but I just can't really connect with it in any way at all the first time I did the panel with her I was like oh, I'm take her on yeah and I took her on but it sounded terrible it sounded like a dude bullying a woman yeah. which is something I always yeah. swore I'd never be yeah so the next time I did it I'm like all right I'm just gonna let her say her piece yeah but then I found out that she will just keep going and that it's next to impossible to yes. actually say your piece. Yeah. Uh, so the third and final time is that I would let her say most of her piece before I would jump in. <laughs> and I think that was the best performance I've done with Michelle Bow. Yeah. She's super smart. Super yeah. smart. Yeah. I just disagree with her. Yeah, almost a hundred percent. Yeah. 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 And um, Wallace is good on the panel. I like Wallace on the yeah. panel. So Wallace. Wallace, what Wallace does is he lets the panellists argue yeah. more than Jim ever did. I liked Jim on the panel as yeah, well, but yeah, for different yeah. reasons. Yeah. And so if if Wallace hears a debate breaking out, he lets it flow, whereas Jim would be very much trying to smooth it over. Yes. Um, and you can see how that's come about with both of them. You know, like Wallace with his uh, TV show. Like, Backbenchers. Great, yep. great instincts for... Seeing, you know, letting a debate erupt, exactly, and then, and then knowing how to basically adjudicate, yeah. kind of, and, and go between, yeah. And then one of the things Wallace will do is if the two panelists agree with one another, he will then play devil's advocate. Yeah, yeah, on. yeah, yeah. Drop a little stink bomb. In yeah. The yeah, yeah, and yeah. And you yeah. know that he doesn't really think that, but he'll just yes. get it going just yes. to get debate going. Yes. And, I, and I admire that. I think he's a good. I think yeah, because the worst guy. radio in the world is, is everyone nodding. What we're doing at the moment, <laughs> yeah. agreeing with each other, not but but it's different in this format. But yes, you can't have shows based around no. that. You've got no, to the, have. The, the and I think some people is... forget that too about shows. Some lists, you know, I don't want to. You know, I certainly don't want to make any comments about RNZ's audience at the moment. But um, but <laughs> because the, 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 that's that's happening a lot. But, yeah, you, you, you do know that some radio listeners don't, for all the listening that they do to it, they still have, maybe that's what fascinates them about it, they still don't quite know 
the sort of pantomime and tennis match of it all. Very the, much the, so. That it is a, radio is a live stage play, you know. But like, you know what? We did that. That was what the Ralston Report was back in the early 90s. Yeah. And it's a format that I think we could have back on TV. We don't have it now. Yeah, yeah I used to so, love watching that. Yeah. You just have people around a table oh, arguing. It's wonderful. Yeah. And yeah. I... They don't do it on television anymore. Yeah. I think there's a gap there. I they think... had a good gang on that. Man, they had some good people yeah. on that. Yeah. The early 90s it was, was so cool. Peak. I loved it. Yeah. And so, and Bill was good as the host. Um, yep. And so I think that they should bring that format back. Mm. But we're not used to doing that now. We're used to having our yelling matches online first. Yes. So that's Twitter. changed it. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Well, Twitter's revolting. How do you cope? You enjoy it. Are you, yeah, I, are you one of those people stirring shit up, or are you just... Yeah, a, I do, but yeah. not intentionally. Yeah. Uh, I think I stir shit up just by the nature of who I am. Yeah. Um, I was quite a late adopter of Twitter. I had uh, a friend who was a very early adopter of Twitter, and he was telling me, this is the future, and I was like, this is dumb. I don't like this at all. This, yeah. is, this is just everyone crying out to try and come up with some witty one-liner mm-hmm. and no one's paying any attention. Mm. But there's a democratisation to Twitter that I like. It gives voice to a lot of people that have never been able to speak out before for myriad reasons, you know, through being a different gender, a different race, whatever. But on Twitter, you're the, you're the same. Mm. And so... Um, it's got some really good points, but it's also got some very horrible points. Been on the receiving end of a couple of Twitter pylons, and they are awful things awful. to yeah. experience. You feel sick, yeah. uh, and you can't help but go and look. You shouldn't look. Don't look. If you're on the receiving end of a pylon, take Twitter off your phone. Now, is this, is this kind of professional advice almost? No, I, no I, we tell our clients not to be on Twitter yeah. for the most part. <laughs> uh, it's it's an individual's thing more than it should be a company or yeah. an organization's thing. Yeah. Um, for those sorts of reasons. Yeah. Yeah, to avoid... Well, best because, way to avoid a pylon is to not be there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And because Twitter is very much... It's a conversational tool, mm. whereas for our clients, they want to broadcast. And so the, the social media thing is that it's more conversational. You're going to say something, people are going to say something back. Yeah. And for our organizations, that's why a lot of them still just use traditional media, is because they don't want to hear that stuff. Yeah, they want to make back. announcements. Yeah. They don't want, you know, they'll handle blowback when it comes to an announcement, but they don't want to firefight exactly. live. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I yeah. mean, the one thing that Twitter has done is that it's, and not just Twitter, but other social media as well, is that when an outrage happens, it's over with faster, whereas previously you'd be a victim of a two or three or four day news cycle, but now people are angry and then they found the new thing to be angry about within a day. Uh, And so quite often a lot of our advice is just say nothing, just wait it out. It's amazing though, every now and then something, I mean, what are we, 2020? When did I review Robbie Williams? 2014. Yes. Every now and then, like I'm talking like once a month or so, I'll get a retweet from a Robbie Williams fan. It's just sort of six years on or something. Five, five, six. So I, there's a piece on the Ruminator. <laughs> I didn't even write this, but there's a piece on the Ruminator called Is Richard Dawkins a Dick? Yeah. And the end conclusion the author came to was that he isn't a dick, which I disagree with. I think he's a huge dick. Yeah, yeah. But every now and again, a Dawkins fan will find that and tweet yeah, that out. In fact, that? Dawkins first tweeted it out and it blew up. It was the first Ruminator piece that ever took off worldwide. 
And, it, but it's and did still, he just do a, like a kind of posted without comment thing? Yeah, and I don't think he read the piece. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. he just read the headline, read, right? Yeah, like, he it just assumed it was a hit piece on yeah, him, and so yeah. unleashed his angry white dude atheist followers. Yeah. And so, yeah, and so every now and again it bubbles up again. And I, if I can be asked, I'll be like, maybe you should go and read the piece. Uh, but I just ignore it. Well, it's, it's amazing that. I mean, I'm in a mild Twitter storm at the moment, and it's um, no one's read the thing that I've allegedly done. They're just reacting to a person telling them that I've done something that's, you know. But that's true of everything. That, yeah. Like, so my pieces are behind a paywall, and people will get incensed yeah. by... A headline, because that's all the they The headline of the opening paragraph, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, like, yeah. That's all they say. So my most recent piece is talking about the people going to supermarkets and panic buying toilet paper, right? Which yeah. we've seen on the news. But it's not really happening in New Zealand no, that much, no. as far as I can tell. But my opening paragraph talks about it as though it is happening, and then I go on to say, actually, it's not. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. But a bunch of people, they just read the first paragraph. And, oh, it's not happening to me. This is just fake news. And and uh, people don't read pieces. No, they read they headlines no. and get... I once pitched a podcast... I won't say to which outlet. I pitched a podcast that would be me, and for 10 minutes I'd get onto stuff in the Herald, and I'd just get angry about all the headlines, but I wouldn't actually read the pieces. I'd just rant about what I assumed they would be. And mm. I thought that was gold. It was mm. the absolute pinnacle of what the zeitgeist is, but they, they, didn't, they didn't go for it. <laughs> well, tell me about the podcast you did get over the line. So, that one is... The, the, so there's me and my business partner, uh, a woman called Lou, and we have a third shareholder in our business, she's a woman called Vic, and uh, we're friends with um, Susie Ferguson from Morning Report, and we were all talking about how dudes have platforms everywhere, here I am on another platform, yeah. I've got my Herald column, I yeah. go on the panel, um, and that it's much easier as a male to get these platforms. But it's much harder for women to get these platforms. And so we're talking about, wouldn't it be cool if there was a platform that was just women? Um, and we were all nodding. Yes, that would be a great idea. And so we decided to... We were going to create a video uh, subscription website where you could go and watch videos of Susie interviewing women. And we recorded a couple of videos. We recorded one with um, Kiritapu Allen, who's a Labour Party MP. And we recorded another video interview with my wife about the whole infertility thing. The video is very expensive to make. Mm -hmm. uh, and also we found that uh, talent is less forthcoming when they've got a, a fucking great camera in the face. Uh, mm -hmm. And also Susie's preferred format as a radio host is audio. So we pivoted to, to, to podcast. And so we just launched it. Uh, quite recently. Mm. Um, You've got two episodes up. Yeah, so it's called Brazen, which was, um, that was Lou, my business partner's suggestion, and when she said that, we are like, that is that is the name, that is definitely the name. Um, and we've got two, the first two episodes up uh, with Michelle Court, who's a comedian and a writer uh, and a very good friend of mine, and with a US, a US activist called Asha Bandele, mm. who worked for for Black Lives Matter and she works on drug law reform and it's been amazing actually for a couple of reasons because we had the idea quite a long time ago it's taken yeah. a long time two and a yeah. half years from conception to fruition um, and in that time we've been like oh someone else is going to do this someone else is going to do this because that time mm. also then 
saw the the Me Too Times Up thing yes. happen yeah. after we'd had the idea. Yeah, yeah. And so we're like, for sure, this is someone else's go. Yeah. Never done. Nobody else yeah. did it. And we just found that just incredibly baffling. Yeah. Um, and so we we have an, a, an interview with the um, the Prime Minister. She gave us uh, half an hour of her time to do. We did an interview with her. Um, everybody who we've approached, one person has declined our request to interview them. And what we're trying to do is we're only, we're, tr- we're releasing two a month. Why won't Michelle Berg do it? <laughs> <laughs> so and, uh, so I will get to that in a second. But so we're releasing two a month, and it's the ambition is that it's someone you have heard of and someone you probably yeah, haven't. Yeah. Heard so of. that hence pairing the first two. Yeah. So people like, in New Zealand, everyone's heard of Michelle Court one way or another. Little Whereas a lot of us knew her on what now, what she talks about. Exactly. It's yeah. a good, they're both great episodes. Yeah. So they to me they're fantastic episodes. Yeah. I, I, so I'm fortunate enough. My role in this is that I sit in on the interviews okay. and just take notes and then go, oh, maybe we should think about asking this bit or we've yeah. glossed over that bit, and then I take photos. And that's, mm. that's my role. And so mm. I've sat in on the, those interviews. And the Michelle interview, she tells um, her own Me Too story, yes, which I won't tell for her, yeah. uh, but I can just remember I, was, I just felt sick. just yeah. felt utterly revulsionly sick I mean it wasn't that long ago I listened to it but it was one of those things like I listen to podcasts a lot and a lot of times it's when I'm like like anyone else a lot of times it's when I'm walking somewhere or whatever and it's one of those things like you bringing it up I can instantly remember exactly where I was in town when she gets to that point you know it's one of those things it's like you'll never forget yeah yeah so it's very very compelling um, storytelling from both her and Susie who's a, a fantastic Interviewer, but it's depressingly but so it's common, awful. right? Yeah, like yeah. that's the that that's the thing, and that was the whole Me Too thing was 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 a really amazing, not amazing, but it was this yes. incredible moment because I it made me reflect and go fuck I'm I'm probably somebody's Me Too story from being an over enthusiastic pursuer of someone that I fancied, and I just didn't realise that it was mm. that it was creepy, mm. and so it made me really. Not to try and send to myself in that story, but just to see how common and how yes, widespread yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. It was just so awful and depressing and just yuck. Um, and so, yeah, so, and, and Michelle just re- told that story really bravely. And, you know, we've done, we've got seven, eight, nine, ten episodes in the can now, um, releasing two a month. Yeah, why are you releasing two a month? That's sort of not how podcasts are done. Because we and don't, that's fine. Like I'm just curious why we don't know how podcasts yeah, right. are done. So you're just trying a different thing. Yeah. But why we, are you doing it? How did you arrive at that? So you could pair them. So yeah. You could so, do the. Yes. That's really it. Yeah. yeah. So it was. So you could play with the whole someone you've heard of, someone you haven't. That you might and, not have. And yeah. some practical reasons. So we all have day jobs. All mm-hmm. of us that are involved in it. So it's a, it's a passion project. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there aren't that many people that are full time. No. with podcasts. <laughs> Mark, even Mark Moran is. Yeah. He's got his. It hasn't TV. stopped him yeah. doing other stuff, unfortunately. No. And so we've had to do a lot of the interviews around our yeah. own Schedule. jobs yeah. and and that sort of thing and, um, and you know we want them done at a high quality so we get them mastered professionally and mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. Um, and so that all takes time and we're we're just sort of seeing how it goes. And the two a month thing, we're not sure how long we'll stick to because mm. there's a lot of buzz around the first. 
we dropped it and then do we lose all that momentum yeah, because well, we take so long to get yeah. to the next one? I mean, yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Like, I was, did you listen to the Chasing Cosby podcast? No. It's very good, but um, it's a very recent, reasonably recent one. But it was weird. I was having this conversation with someone. It was it was almost disappointing listening to that as it was dropping in the old-fashioned... Because we can't remember... Re- I mean, we say we remember. We all grew up watching TV episodically, week to week or whatever. But um, having to wait for a podcast... Yeah. And I know this is a you know the epitome of a first-world problem. I recognise that. But... Yeah, I'm not used to that. Yeah. Like, uh, you, you usually get to a podcast after several people have told you about it, because there's so fucking many of them, and the, the sweet spot is when it's still going, but there's half a dozen or so yeah. in the can, so you're never fully, even if you have a big binge, a new one drops, yeah. and you're only just, once you, when you're waiting each week, it became excruciating waiting for that one. It's only, <laughs> it's only about a six episode, and I, I recommend it to anyone. It's, you know, quite a quite aside from the fact that Cosby's despicable and um, you know it's great to see as harrowing as it is it's great to see that unpacked anyone who's a fan of journalism and wonders where it's going should listen to it because it was it was stunning like radio journalism I'll check it out yeah 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 and as someone uh, responsible now co-responsible for putting podcasts into the world you'd have a uh, you know professional curiosity yeah very much so but but also you'd be you know you'd be amazed what the 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 level of me too story telling in it it's frightening yeah that's it it's horrible right and it's I'm disappointed in myself for not having known that it was going on and I can remember the Cosby thing and I was like, if everybody knew, and this is true of Weinstein, I just couldn't wrap my head around, if everybody knew, mm. why did no one say anything? Well, the most horrific thing to me, well, one of the most horrific things in the Chasing Cosby podcast is the woman who played Claire Huxtable, I think her name is Priscilla Richard. Yep. I think that was her name. Um, there's audio of her basically saying, you know, how dare these people uh, ruin his his legacy. You're dealing with a man's legacy. But the level of self-interest is so obvious. What she's really saying is, um, if you take his legacy away, you take mine away. Yeah, that show won't be getting syndicated. Because he got me my best gig I'll ever have. And you can read whatever else into that you want that his dealings with her were were fine and maybe they were fine because he wasn't interested in her because what you know you can, you can go down those paths but but that's not necessary the the simple thing is she got rich off of him and fame and she's nobody if yeah. it's forgotten and so she's prepared to sell out everyone else's story that's meaningful and harrowing and awful. She's quite prepared to say, what's more important is that my show I was on is yeah. remembered fondly because it was a nice show. That's what she wants to have happen. And the Weinstein stuff's been amazing like that. You know, that woman that jumped jumped uh, camp to be his lawyer mm. and she's got this whole career of that, of fighting. And she, she, she basically sends the equivalent of an audition tape to Weinstein and says... I know victims, I know their stories, I know how to get them. I'll come and use everything I've done Horrendous. for you. Now, why did she do that? Do you know why she did no. that? She had a um, film script she wanted to see happen. Oh, fuck. That's, <laughs> isn't that, I mean, it's, whatever the answer is, there's no decent answer, but how, that's how awful it is. That whole sort of like, 
we're, we're only one or two degrees away from potential. You know, again, it's that thing of John Key being worth $50 million. We might we might one day get that. We're just a lotto ticket and a bit of hard work off getting that. I've always been interested when Jackson spoke up and he said that he... Who was it? Who who were the women? Ashley Judd. He didn't. Mm. He Weinstein talked about. Oh, that they were on the list. Yeah, yeah, there was a list. Don't use these people. They're difficult. They're difficult. Rosanna Arquette. Yeah, and Ashley Judd. Ashley I think was it too. Yeah. yeah, and I always side-eyed Jackson for that. Feel like he got away with that. Well, it was a, yeah. He was a bit. He was someone who was just taking the money, wasn't he? I won't get in the way of the deal that's been put to me because this it's a bit it is a bit like the Fasilla Rashad thing. It's basically like Yeah. This if I say anything about this, it stands in the way of my ultimate goal, which is to become one of the world's best known film directors. Yeah. Thank um, God for Ronan Farrow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you listened to his catch no, call? That's I, I, that, the other that one that's, on my list. That's that's sort of like um Right up, basically right up there with the Chasing Cosby one. I think the Chasing Cosby one is actually better storytelling, but man, there's some wow moments in that in that Catch and Kill, particularly Rosanna Arquette talking, is, is just amazing. And she talks about she talks about the moment where she walks out out of the room, she escapes, and and she says, you know, I got off lightly compared to anyone else, but she's in the elevator, and when it gets to the ground floor, she's like, that's my career fucked. And it was. That's it was, you know, and just it was. Awful. And she says, I just felt in the pit of my stomach, that's me, I'm not in the movies anymore. And for a long time, and sort of still in a way, she isn't. She went from being really visible to just, Gone. you know, to, to, to on this list of being difficult, yeah. So Michelle's story was um, mm. really harrowing to listen mm. to. And then the kicker was Susie asked her when it was. And I'm sitting in the room, yeah. and I'm like, this must have happened in, like, the 80s. Yeah, totally. And Michelle says, oh, 2014? And I, yeah. my head explodes. Totally. that just seems so recent, and that shit's happening still. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then she wrote, so then uh, she asked us if she could write a companion piece to go with mm. her podcast. And we were mm. like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So she did, she wrote this wonderful piece about it, and she's, just freely said, you know, a lot of other shit happened in the 80s and 90s that I guess I'm just not ready to talk about yet. Yeah. And it's just so awful to hear. You yeah. Know? And so, if I think back to who I was at university, I was the sort of guy that would say things like, oh, there's a minister of women's affairs, why isn't there a minister of men's affairs? Yeah. That's the sort of asshole who I was. Yeah. And I think a lot of my last 15 years of life has sort of been trying to atone for that human being mm -hmm. and I feel like maybe Brazen is kind of coming to the apex of that is that and I and I am well aware of the irony that we're sitting here listening to a male pitch yeah 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 this podcast yeah. about women's voices um but that's 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 what I feel good about. Is it, you know, I wasn't going to have you on here, which I mean, we've talked about having a chat for this podcast for a long time, and I wasn't going to, um, to have you on here and not talk about it, Brazen. But, yeah, I'm well aware of the fact that the first it's getting mentioned is me talking to you. I was going to actually talk to Michelle, and it didn't work out when she was last down, and so I would have asked her about her involvement in the podcast first, and I definitely want to talk to Susie at some point so I will get some other voices on it yes, but, good, do but um, you're here and you are involved yeah. so we, we do have to talk about it yeah. but it's a bit like we. I'm trying to think it's like um, that. it's unavoidable in a particularly a small landscape like New Zealand um, you know you're saying about you don't want to be on the panel unless there's gender diversity 
the day that I was doing the pre-panel when you were there, was that when I was talking about Kobe? I think it was. Was I talking about Kobe yes. Bryant? And it's like, you know, because that had just happened, and it's like there I was, you know, like uh, a white guy talking about Kobe in the context not just of his alleged rape and how women felt about him, but also discussing how black people yeah. felt about their heroes. And, and so I just said live on air you know, it's New Zealand, so we've gone to a white man for yeah. expert opinion on this. Which because, I admired for that. Well, it's just like, what else do you do? Like, I'm not going to sit there and sound like fucking Professor Radio, like, because I'm not, you know? <laughs> I know. And I think acknowledging it is important, yeah. but then also actually following it up with actions, right? Which I think is, is where the whole thing yeah. for, for Brazen comes into it. And, you know, we've got media who are interested in talking to us, and there's a lot of discussion about what my role in that would actually mm look like and we haven't necessarily ironed that out yet because it's disingenuous for me not to be there uh but also i desperately it's not about me it's not about me at all you know you can read me every monday on the herald if you want to hear my reckons Um, if you if you want to pay the herald's paywall you should pay the herald's paywall because journalism is very important Mm. and if we don't pay for it then it will die because those kids I'm coming not, through doing I'm it... I'm not paying the Herald's paywall until they put their stories about lopsided boobs and the Kardashians in general behind the paywall too. So... And, the, and anything to do with the fucking block or anything like that needs to go behind the paywall as well or instead, and then I might think of paying it. But you see, there are some amazing journalists that work... Well, that was well, well not answered. Thank you. <laughs> there are amazing journalists that work at the Herald. Sure. Uh, whose stuff, not through any choice of theirs, goes behind the paywall. And if the paywall doesn't work, then I think that journalism is in serious trouble, right? Yeah, because sure. in the well, whatever, it is anyway. But yes, yes but yeah, 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 totally. I, well, I agree in the with you. early mid two thousands, yeah, they slapped it all up online for free with the expectation that the advertising that carried the print editions would flow through into online, Mm. suddenly found that was not the case at all. Mm -hmm. And so, but because they'd started on this path of giving it away for free, we all became accustomed to having this content for free. Uh, It's the same with MP3s and iTunes, right? iTunes took a really long time to get to New Zealand, by which time a whole lot of people were just very used to using LimeWire or whatever it was they were using to download their MP3s. And so it became difficult for people to start paying for it. But what things like Netflix have shown us is that if you have got the content delivery mechanism right, people are prepared to pay for it. And so, yes, there are stories that you won't want to see on the Herald and you're not interested. That's fine. Don't read them. But just think that there are... Kirsty Johnson stories, there sure, are Matt yeah, Nippet, David yeah. Fisher, Jared Savage, uh, Claire Trevette. They are these amazing journalists whose stuff is behind the paywall because it has to work. But it's still creating a, a an interesting problem between, uh, you know, those writers you named are all fantastic, but they are being given a perceived value of snootiness and snobbishness because they've been put behind a paywall. As you say, it's not their choice. They probably find out about it after they write the pieces and are paid no matter what. Then they're put behind it. Joe Idiot, who writes about fucking recaps the block or whatever, 
Um, not just picking on the block, I don't watch any of these shows. So, you know, recaps, fucking Dancing with the Stars, Idol, whatever, anything. Joe Idiot, who recaps that, or tells you with excited, demented glee that Harry Styles is playing here, whatever, they may be an okay writer too, but they may not be. They might be shit, and that might be all they do. And most people accessing their website are not paying for the paywall and so they look at the people behind the paywall when they see the headline and the thing as probably a bit above their station which is garbage it's a stupid it's a stupid setup you're creating it's almost like countering anti-intellectualism by deciding that there's snobbish categories that people need to hide behind yeah and look i saw today that newsroom which has a pro section that you have to yeah. pay for for premium yeah. content. And they've said that anything, and I don't know when you're publishing this podcast, so it probably dates it, but they said that anything that pertains to the coronavirus will not be behind the paywall in the interests of, you know, public yeah. information and that sort of thing. And that's a very admirable position. Wow, it isn't, it isn't. It's still in the interests of eyeballs. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um... But no one's got a, a silver bullet. The silver bullet for media mm-hmm. in the States was Donald Trump. So that was what saw subscriptions for your New York Times and your Washington Posts go mm-hmm. through the roof, mm-hmm. right? Was that people wanted to read with horrified eyes all the yes. latest stories. What's he said now? Yeah, exactly. And yeah. so he was the silver bullet uh, over in the States. Yeah. I don't know what it would be in New Zealand. You know, yeah. we're a small market. That's the other yeah, problem. Yeah, There's yeah. not enough people to sustain a lot of media outlets mm. or any media outlets, mm. you know? And so it's it's really tricky. And I, it would be very sad if another media outlet closed, if we lost more. Sure. Um, but, we yeah, we tend to cancel people and shut them down before they get to that, before they transcend it, as Trump has. But again, because of how small we are. Like, well, also, you know, no, I'm not, I, you know, I don't, I don't want some muckraking idiot getting further ahead than they are really anyway, but we tend to be small enough to kind of fight those fires and contain that. Yeah. And the nature of the New Zealand psyche. I mean, there's a wily is, old, you know, Winston Peters or whatever. But, so I'll give you, okay. So I'll give you my defense of Winston Peters. Right. So, and I disagree with almost everything that Winston says, but within every society, there is a reactionary, bigoted group of people, mm-hmm. and they will vote for a reactionary, bigoted politician. In every election campaign, Winston and his ilk will trot out all the racist tropes, yep. and he will mop up a lot of that reactionary, bigoted vote. But then when he gets into power, he actually does very little with it. He doesn't immigrate, he hasn't turned the immigration tap off, you know? Like, he doesn't affect racist policies. He just... He's just happy to be in power. And so, if you have to have a reactionary, bigoted party, I would much rather it was a benign group like New Zealand First than one who might actually do some damage. And so that is my defence of Winston Peters. I still think that New Zealand First has been a horrible handbrake on progress, Yeah. but that is my only defence of them. But it's basically like what you've just described there as a person working towards middle management to get their gold watch, but doing it on a... On a better pay scale and in public and yeah. playing playing with a few people's lives here and there or at least making out like they are. Which so it is, is a it is still terrible. It's deplorable in that sense. It is, yes, absolutely. But it is still if there is an alternative which is that we get a really genuine racist sure. political party. It's also someone that sees 
the the absurdity of politics Winston yeah. does and is playing it for yeah. his own benefit exactly like, and he won't be, I mean he might be immortal but I don't think nah. he is he won't be playing it for much longer no. and when he goes that party goes they won't survive without him no and that and yeah that's right and that kind of ethos goes right yeah. like that kind well, of hopefully. hopefully so we've talked about a whole lot none of it's really changed anything in the world beyond your brazen podcast is a, is a wonderful thing that's what I hope does change yeah the world because I have a daughter and I want finally yes finally exactly uh, she's 19 months now yeah and I hope that she grows up in a world where her gender and you know she may identify as another gender and that's fine but that her gender if she identifies as woman is not a barrier to anything that's what I hope mm. and I don't when so I I wanted a boy when we we found out that Kim was pregnant because all my lived experiences yeah, are as a yeah, boy, yeah, right? Yeah. And so I thought, if I can, I'll be able to relate better if it's a boy. Then we found out we were having a girl, and I was overjoyed. I was so... Pl- my only concern was that she was going to grow up into a sexist world. But then I thought, I'm so pleased that I'm not going to be raising another entitled... Yeah, little- and besides, she'll have all that money you've made from working with Big Oil. Exactly. So, you know, she's going to have a better life than yeah. some. Right? Yeah, all, all that, that, that <laughs> tobacco and big yeah. oil money. Yeah. I'm, so, I'm, so, to dance back to that, so I yeah. worked in tobacco, not tobacco, fuck no, I never. They tried to work with us, we turned them down. They offered us an obscene amount of money too. Right. But, so I worked with big oil, and then I went and I worked with the Green Party, and boy, there was a lot of suspicion of me because I'd worked. Rightly so. Yeah, yeah, Rightly yeah, yeah. so. Yeah. But no, I am a, a staunch environmentalist at heart, which is part of the reason why I got out of that PR firm. But PR is one of those industries that you actually have to sacrifice some of your own values when you're a slave to the wage. And mm. until we find a better solution, that's what we all are. Mm. I'll, give you, I, I, I'll um, give you one final um, talking point. Um, before we wrap um, how would you manage me if I was your PR project because I look at you as as I started to say before I look at you as a, a as a sort of uh, loudmouth know-it-all that thinks they're funny but you've uh, you've found employment and kept your platforms how would I manage you I think that you've kind of been on your own redemption arc since you stopped writing for stuff right like so You've been less prominent than you were, and you've started giving yourself over a lot more. There was always something guarded about your stuff articles, but now, you know, you post a lot of your own poetry online, and you talk about, and this might be virtue of being Facebook friends, and I see things that other people don't, but you talk about how experiences have affected you as a human being. And so if you humanise someone, people can relate, right? Mm -hmm. The idea, as I said to you, the mythical conception of Simon Sweetman is very different to the human being Simon Sweetman. Yeah, yeah. And so if you reveal to the world that actually you're a human being who has feelings and gets sad and gets upset and gets scared like everybody else does and you have your own anxieties, people relate to that. They relate. Mm. People bond over weakness more than they bond over strength. Yeah, because well, we've all... We all know it. Yeah. We all have it. Oh, well, that's really ultimately probably what started this podcast, right? Like was the chance to 
talk to people, obviously get people's stories, find out about them, celebrate people, but also celebrate conversation yeah. and share something of myself. And more power to that. I applaud it. And I think it's it's a funny medium, isn't it? Mm. Like I go back to I wanted to do comedy because I wanted to just talk and podcasts allow you to do that and I think that's cool. And I think it's stronger for there being more than one voice. It's Yeah, and it's interesting like how you will like like anything you have to get used to it and you you know like i didn't ask you but like you talked about watching previous episodes of the nation did you analyze yourself on tv very much no i can't watch myself on tv no everyone says that but you would have given your line of work and what you're doing do you know if you're going to recommend to someone how they sit and operate and how they hold themselves you must have studied yourself at least once so after I was on The Nation once, the producer sent me the feedback that people write. People write fucking horrible things into TV and radio about the people that appear. And Horrific. the one that I remember was someone said, who's the fat Labour supporter? <laughs> I'm sick of seeing him. And I was more offended by being called a Labour supporter, I think, than being called fat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You are what you are. And yeah, so, yeah. And so, but fuck, that made me laugh. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, no, I do... I still have the handwritten note from Tracy from Rotorua that says, to the big, fat, ginger-bearded pillock, which she spelt wrong. Um, you know, how dare you? Freddie Mercury is a phenomenal talent. Uh, and it's beautiful because the, the handwriting, I'm going to put it in frame one day because it's an amazing piece of psychology, psychological evidence that, you know, the handwriting even slants up towards the end as she's getting more and more angry with what she has to say. But yeah, yeah. And I would have never got something like that. I've had plenty of abuse, but that was just, there's just something so perfect yeah. and beautiful about that from one of the earliest TV appearances I did on Good Morning. Yeah. yeah. It's, yeah. it's funny the things that do and don't stick with you. Yeah. Um, and so, I, yeah, and so I, so I, I have watched myself on occasion. Uh, what you're saying is you don't now. Yeah, I try not to, because yeah. I'm uncomfortable. I know what I look like, I know what I sound like, um, and I always... Well, the thing is, you're not, you're not there because you won a beauty contest or were trying to. You're not there because you're into, you know, or anything yeah. like that. You're there because, and you know, I've... I've said this to people the couple of times that I've been asked for advice on how to hand yourself, handle yourself on either TV or radio. It's happened a couple of times. And you say, like, you you know, it's a bit like people con um, getting over their fear of public speaking, isn't it? It's basically someone thinks you're an expert, their words. Someone thinks you've got something to say about something. Concentrate on that and, yeah. deli and deliver that. Yeah. That's what you're there for. Be who you yeah. are. Yeah, yeah. And default to the truth. Is yeah. what I always advise to my clients. Yeah. Is, is if you get asked something that you don't expect, just be honest in your response. Mm. It's very sage advice. Um, but I couldn't watch. My, my parents recorded every episode for a year of me on Good Morning TV when they had, like, one of those first kind of, you know, DVR things. Yeah. And they sent me or gave me a burnt DVD at the end of the year. And it's like, what am I going to do with that? Like, I guess I'll keep it for my kid to look at one day. Yeah. And... and Fuck, that's but, a point. You know, but... Also, not really. <laughs> you know, like... <laughs> you know, he's, I, I wouldn't expect him to be interested at all. But I watched a couple of them. And then it was just like, I, I can't watch this because I guess the similar things you're, you're saying. Like, I can't watch, 
not only is it a bit ridiculous to sit and watch it, but I watched the first couple to see how awkward I was to try and fix that, like you would with anything. Yeah. And after that, it was just like, you know, the first time I saw myself, all I could think was, are all the buttons on my shirt done up? <laughs> Did I spill coffee down my shirt before I went on there and they didn't tell me? You know, yeah. It was things like, it wasn't, I actually didn't give a fuck what I said. It was just like staring and going, yeah. where's the thing I've done wrong? Yeah. Like, I, I know what I look like. I know they can't cure that. But have I made it worse? <laughs> you know, that so- was it. That's reminded me, I did watch actually, and I found that I'm really weird with my hands on TV, and so what I did is every subsequent time, I brought a notebook and a pen on set, Ah. and so when I'm sitting around the table, I've got, it's just to to occupy my hands, because... Because you've done some big things like the election coverage where you're on for, for, for fucking hours. I, yeah, and that was hard going. It's like a telethon. <laughs> yeah, it was. and <laughs> Crossed with a 40-hour famine or something like that. Well, it was such a yeah. disaster, though, because the early votes came in and they painted the electorate one way and then it didn't move. Mm. And so the election night coverage started at like 7pm and yeah. the results are coming in, but we had them instantly. Because the, the, everyone who voted on the day it pretty much mapped out to how yeah. the early voters had yeah, gone. Yeah. And so we just had to sit there and just fill dead air. I can remember there was one moment, I'm sitting on the I'm sitting on set and there's me and John Johansson, we were the two panellists on at the time, and Lisa Owen and Duncan Garner were the host. And we're talking to them, talking to them, and then Garner says, oh, we just, we've just heard we've, we've got Paula Bennett. We're now going to go to Paula Bennett, who's the Deputy Prime Minister. And I went... Not for long, forgetting that I'm fully mic'd up <laughs> and on air. And under this table, Lisa Owen just whacked me on the leg. Oh, I was right, though. She wasn't pretty Prime Minister for long. Uh, and on the night, there were only two of us. So there was like eight panellists, I think, and they rotated us throughout the evening. And on the night, there were only two of us who said that we thought that Winston would go with Labour. I was one of them, and the other was John Johansson. And he then almost immediately became New Zealand First Chief of Staff. So I feel like he may have known, and so therefore I'm claiming to have been the best analyst on the night because I'm the only one that thought Winston would go with Jacinda. And then the next day, I got on, my, got on the plane back from Auckland, and the air steward said, Were you on? Were you, on the, were you on TV3's election night coverage last night? I said, yes, I was. She said, yeah, I remember, because you were wearing a really nice blazer. <laughs> and that that was it. That, I think that's probably where my, my fear of the appearance things come from, is that nothing I said, nothing I said at all resonated. It was my Word, blazer. Words don't matter. No, blazers <laughs> matter. Wear a nice blazer, everybody. That's the 2020s version of wear sunscreen. Talk too much. 